0: This summer, everyone's got Elvis on the brain. So did we cover the new Elvis movie by Baz Luhrmann? No. Did we cover one of Elvis's older movies? Also no. Instead, we covered the most relevant movie of all. That's right, for the very first time ever, I watched. Eddie Presley. We go on
1: together suspicious
0: what is up, everybody? Welcome to Clear Tented Classics, the show where I, your host, Jake Ryan Baker, watch classic movies for the very first time and give my nostalgia free opinions on them. And today, is a very special episode, a special episode, because not only do we have a guest, we have a first-time guest, a fellow podcaster, a fellow director. It's so exciting to finally get to meet him and talk to him. Henrique Couteau is on the show. It rolls off the tongue so well. Welcome to the show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy
1: to be here, man. So happy to be here.
0: I'm so happy to have you. I'm excited. I've, been, I've uh, seen your face a lot, thanks to John's social media and stuff, but I've never gotten to talk in person And still haven't, because unfortunately we're online, but uh, finally getting at least face-to-face for once, and it's (laughs) just fun. I just love meeting new people, and I love doing this show and having an excuse to do that, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, meet new people, nerd out about films.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure.
1: What's better than that? Nothing. Nothing at all.
0: You just uh, had yourself a pretty
1: big trip recently, didn't you? Yeah, just got back from Memphis, Tennessee. I was at the Joe Bob Briggs Drive-In Jamboree. Yeah. uh, (laughs) just of me, rhymes with Memphis, Tennessee. They should have really <laughs> pushed that on the on the poster more. But uh, yeah, I went there uh, for three nights of orgiastic nerdy fun. Orgiastic, and, uh, nice. That's term. the way they described it, <laughs> <laughs> and I agree. It was a lot. It was a blast, man. They they did a, a convention during the day, and then at six o'clock, the drive-in down the road would open up, and then we would do. They would do live events. They had a band play Whoa. every night. Um, and the, and it was like, it was almost like a horror nerd review because sometimes like, uh, like Jonah Ray from MST three K came up and play and did a song. Whoa, that's um,
0: cool.
1: yeah. And a couple other people did too, like, uh, like other, uh, actors, uh, uh, one of the songs, Kelly Maroney and Felissa Rose did the backup dancing. And it was like, I was literally <laughs> like, this is like a horror nerd review. It was, it was the coolest thing ever. And then they showed stuff like Halloween three hosted by Joe Bob with guests from the film. Uh, All kinds of really fun stuff. So I had a blast. It was, it was a really great time. And uh, I sorely needed it because I, I work a lot. So <laughs> I definitely could always use a break.
0: Yeah, that's tough. Cause I mean, you, I mean, you're doing the filmmaking thing full time, right?
1: Uh, yeah. You, you ain't, you ain't just whistling Dixie. I was right before we came on here. I was looking at a list of people trying to figure out if I need to file lawsuits. It's the best. It's, it's a dream factory. Uh, yeah. show business is just a dream come true. Yeah, it's, uh,
0: it's tough and it's funny. Cause I, I think that does play a lot into the themes of today's film, but it is it doesn't matter like what your dream job is. There's always going to be some kind of uh, push and pull and oh, yeah. downsides
1: to everything. It's not all just sunshine and rainbows all the time. Well, I always try and tell people, I'm like, remember dreams and nightmares are pretty damn close. They're, they're basically <laughs> the same function. So why shouldn't they be somewhat interchangeable? Yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: I mean, it makes sense. It's tough too. Cause it's like, if you finally get into a profession that you actually truly care about, that also kind of raises the stakes a little bit in a oh, weird way God. where it's the like, scariest, if, you were, yeah, yeah, if you're just working some job, like that's just like you're nine to five to make some money. It's easy to be like, well, that sucked, but at least it's not like my hopes and dreams, but this, this is like way higher stakes. Oh yeah. <laughs> and,
1: and, and the first few years, my biggest fear was just getting where I was, where I wanted to be doing what I always wanted to do. And then realizing I didn't care for it very much. <laughs> that was my biggest fear is yeah. I was like, what if, what if once I'm really doing this day in, day out, it just sucks. <laughs> like, what if yeah. I'm like, you know what? Never mind. That was actually my <laughs> biggest fear. It never happened, but I was always afraid of it uh, early on. So, so, so what, um,
0: yeah. <laughs> what was sort of your journey? Is this, are you someone that wanted to be a filmmaker from the early onset or did you stumble across it later or what, what's been your, uh, you don't have to like, Give us every plot point <laughs> of of your life story, but I'd love to I'd love to know where people started because sure. i'm I'm a bit of a late bloomer myself, so I love to hear uh, both stories. I like to hear fellow late bloomers, but I also like to seethe with jealousy over the people that were in their backyards oh, making stuff at ten <laughs> i was
1: I was the prodigy of everything I did when I started. Cause I started super <laughs> duper young when I was 12 years old, I had my own cable access TV show.
0: Oh my goodness. <laughs> and I was the youngest,
1: I was the youngest producer at the station to do their own show without adult help. Wow. Um, so I mean, other than, you know, the staff that's there to help you, but like, right. I, I, mean, I, I I don't know if yeah. we've
0: talked about it, but that's literally what I do. I, I work at a public access station. Yeah. Uh, at the library. <laughs> oh, that's
1: very cool. I, yeah. I knew you worked at a library and there was like public media involved. Yeah. 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 So
0: I, I never was that into public access, but obviously it's like, I mean, I, I love my job. It's not quite filmmaking, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a really interesting life work for sure. Oh, sure. <laughs> I can't no, imagine and, getting to work with like a prodigious 12 year old. That would be pretty in, <laughs> intense.
1: I, I just showed <laughs> up and I was like, I'm going to, I took the classes. You had to take these classes. So I took them. And I started making these little shows and making these little skits. And I basically lived at that access station from twelve till s- almost sixteen. I was there every Saturday and every Sunday, either editing, or I was there doing, uh, other- working on other people's shows, like running camera for other people. Doing, I'm oh, sure, yeah, what that's what definitely how
0: it goes down there too. Yeah. A lot of the familiar faces also run camera on other people's oh, yeah. shows. And-
1: well, and it's a great way to find people to then help you on your shows. Yes, it's a great course. way to just meet, make friends that are interested in the same things as you. So that was, that was my kind of the beginnings was hey, where why, was this? Oh, that was, well, that was in a uh, uh, Dayton, Ohio at the, this okay. was at the Miami Valley communications council, although it was called the Miami Valley cable council when I was there. Cause that was a very <laughs> long time ago. I'm 30. 30- now i started when i was 12 doing like d- editing videos and this was before you edited on computers I, we edited svhs deck to deck through an amiga video toaster for titles right right, yeah i mean this was the, you know because we were like about four or five years away from it being able to be available to everybody to some extent mm-hmm. um and i i i noticed that i had the knack and the obsession element because my mom used to always say she was like, I'd never before my own son. I never knew a 12 year old who could sit and do one thing for nine hours straight. Yeah. And I would, I would sit cause the access station was open for nine hours for, for nine hours. I would be in the, in the editing room, editing my little goofy TV shows or editing my little skits together to air on television. And it was just, it was, that was the thing, the obsession uh, that drove me. And that was actually later on in life. I ended up my last day job before uh, eight years ago, I became a full-time filmmaker. And before that I worked at a different community access station. I, that was my, my job. And I helped other people make their shows. And when I would teach classes on how to operate cameras or how to edit, uh, people would always say like, well, how do you get to that next level? Cause I had already had some movies released and stuff. So people kind of were looking to me, sure, to like, sure. You know, how to get to the professional level. And I would tell them I'd tell them flat out. I'd be like. I can only teach you so much, but I can't teach you obsession. So you're either going to leave here obsessed with this and desperate to learn it under any, you know, any means necessary, or you won't. I can't, cause nobody taught me to be obsessed. I just, right. I just would sit there, you know, and when I wasn't at the access station, I'd be sitting there with two VCRs in my bedroom, trying to cut things together, you know, tape to tape, you know, making skits with my mom's dogs and stuff. It was, <laughs> it was just my absolute obsession. And then, when I was uh, about 15 and a half, uh, we came into some money well, about my family, 15, and <laughs> 15 and a half, 15, <laughs> it was somewhere in there. Uh, I know it was right before I turned 16. I, uh, I, I, we came into some money. My family did. Cause we came from pretty humble beginnings. And my mother was like, what is the only, the only thing in the world you'd want? And I was like, I want a Macintosh computer. Mm. And cause I want to edit video on it and I yeah. want to do it, you know, well, So, uh, we ended up getting me, luckily I was, you know, still in high school. So I was able to get an educational Mac, which was like discounted massively. Oh, Nice. So I cut a bunch of stuff on there and then I went from making cable access shows to making little movies in my backyard. And I would, I would make the little 25, 30, 40 minute movies. I would author them to DVD. I would print sleeves. I would put them in cases and I would sell them everywhere I went. Nice. (laughs) Everywhere I went, I would be selling them. And then I started doing fan conventions, uh, at the, around 15 years old as well. So I would like get a corner of a buddy's table and sell movies off the corner. So I was, I was moving really, really fast towards, (laughs) towards this being the thing I wanted more than anything. Yeah. Um, That's super cool though. And I'd been obsessed with movies just as, as early as I can remember Living, I remember watching movies, and, and so and what then, a great like, what's as- your what's were.
0: your taste like? Then uh, has it did it start off one way, and has it changed over time, or have you do you have a certain? I mean, I, I assume like me, you could appreciate any good movie. Oh, I but- I
1: love every type of movie. I'm and I'm a sucker for like romantic comedies. I'm a sucker for uh, for dramas. I'm a I'm a sucker for just about anything as long as it's entertaining by telling a story and trying to get an honest reaction out of you. That's really all that really excites me. So when I was a kid, you know, it was like horror movies. I was way too exposed to horror movies as a kid, way more than I probably should have been. Um, that seems you know, to be a common
0: movies. theme I hear from people. I'm I'm pretty shocked by the age at which people were watching certain things.
1: <laughs> I, I I had my own copy of Nightmare on Elm Street one through five when I was <laughs> six years old. Holy my cow. my sister gave my older sister gave them to me. She became too cool for them. You know she was a teenager, so she became too cool. So she was like, here you can have these. So I would sit up at night watching Nightmare on Elm Street three. Because Nightmare on Elm Street 1 and 2 were too scary to watch at night. I would only watch those by myself during the daytime when I was like six, seven, eight years old. Uh, but they became a, a, just a, a staple of my life watching Nightmare on Elm Street movies. I was also really into Batman, the uh, Tim Burton Batman. That was something that uh, I okay. watched again and again and again as a little kid. But, you know, one of the movies that inspired me the most that would honestly be a great movie to do on the show sometime was The Wizard of Speed and Time. Most people have never heard of it. It yeah. was a low, it was a low budget movie by a guy named Mike Jitlov and Mike Jitlov was a, f- was famous for being an animator in the days before computers. He was a stop motion animator. He was a, a, a optical animator. He was just really incredible. And somehow in the eighties, he ra- he got somebody to give him like a million dollars to make this ridiculous movie where almost every shot is a special effects shot about a guy named Mike who he plays who is a special effects artist who no one wants to hire, who has to prove himself by doing this, uh, this making this footage for a TV special. And it's, it's, it's a really fun movie. It's got a good script. It's, it's got this kinetic insanity because seriously, almost every shot has some kind of special effect happening in it, whether it's stop motion animation or, or, or uh, just trick photography or something. It's just constantly doing stuff like that. And that movie I watched I would rent that from the library again and again and again and again. And then it was, uh, maybe when I was 16 or 17, I found a copy and I watched it for the first time as an adult and realized, wow, I watched a movie about a guy trying to make a movie over and over and over again. When I was a little <laughs> kid, I had, cause when, when people would say like, uh, if you're if, like, when I would tell people, I used to watch the Wizard of speed and time, they'd be like, what's it about? And I never even remembered that he made a movie in it. I just remembered all the wacky scenes. Yeah. Huh. So then when I rewatched this at all, I'm like, Oh shit, this entire movie is about making movies and about (laughs) how frustrating and heartbreaking it is and, and, and things like that. So that's a movie that I think left a massive imprint on me. Um, and to this day, I still think about that movie a lot. Uh, there's a line in it when, where they're filming this little short and they have no money to do it inside the, in the movie. So uh, he says like, do you really think we're going to be able to shoot this whole thing with no permits, a couple of friends and a $20 sleeping bag for sound dampening? Cause they would wrap <laughs> the sleeping bag around the film, you know, so that you didn't hear the film sp- spooling through. Yeah. And, uh, and I just remember what Jitlov said to that, that, that like spoke to my heart as a creative person. He turned to his friend and said, one day when we have the feature budget, we'll use hundred dollar sleeping bags. And then he just runs <laughs> past him to go back to work. And and that's the way my entire career has kind of been. It's like I'm always saying like, don't worry, it'll be fine. Let's just do it. Wee, you know. Uh, and there were other things too. Like there's a scene where like they're trying to film this this scene, and and um a, a thunderstorm starts, and then an earthquake starts, and then like a tornado starts. <laughs> like It just keeps the weather keeps changing. Suddenly <laughs> there's a part where he's like, he's like, well, at least we're not trying to do this in an earthquake. And then everything starts shaking. He's like, stop saying that. he's like, or what if it was calm weather, perfectly calm and everything quiets down. And he's like, Hey, it worked. Like it was stuff like, <laughs> that. like I catch myself quoting every time I'm on set uh, to this day, <laughs> just little things that Mike Jitlov would say in the wizard of speed and time, which That's is really cool another movie that's like impossible to find other than on YouTube illegally. It's just not available. It was <laughs> never on DVD. Um, I, cause I have the weirdest, I have this, this, uh, ability to really fall in love <laughs> with obscure stuff. Yeah. Uh, very much.
0: <laughs> well, it's been, a, it's been a topic. Uh, I, I remember listening to script notes forever ago and they were talking about like the preservation of media. And I, I think people don't realize how many movies have actually just been lost the time uh, oh, yeah. because, they, because they just don't even know. Uh, I mean, and so it is, yeah, it's like, sometimes it's like someone ripped a VHS and threw it on YouTube and that's like the only way you can even see it. Like, it's yeah. a shame, like someone put their heart and soul into something that's obviously very meaningful to you. And even on IMDb, I'm noticing it's like pretty well rated. Uh, and And so... Uh, it seems like a shame that it's so hard to get a hold of, especially if it's like f- kind of an underrated gem.
1: Oh Yeah, and and it <laughs> does have its its people who love it. I uh I was producing this movie in Illinois a few years back with uh, Jeffrey Combs and Corey Feldman were starring in it, um and a few other people. And the director he was a first time director, and that's why I was hired as his producer because I had an immense amount of experience. So I was <laughs> there to kind of get him out of trouble anytime there was any trouble. And um we we didn't get along great the first day, I think because he didn't like knowing I could fire him. And I'm not trying to be like, haha power drip. I had no no. desire to fire him. All I (laughs) wanted to do was get him to do his job perfectly. And I wasn't riding his butt. Um, In fact, the first thing I said to him after I shook his hand was I was like, look, I know that I have the power to like remove you from this movie, but I would really not like to, I really just want to make sure that you don't (laughs) fail. I'm here to make sure you succeed. Right. And, but then the next day at lunch, I quoted the wizard of speed and time and he had seen it and it was like stepbrothers. All of a sudden we looked at each other like, did we just become best friends? he was like, yup, you know? So, and then the rest of that film, we would just like quote wizard of speed and time to each other. Anytime things got tense, we would just, you know, holler lines from that movie at each other. So, but, uh, to, to make the, this, this tangential story much shorter. So when I was 18 years old, I made my first feature and then, um, I ended up getting basically, for lack of a better term, I got kind of headhunted. I got uh, found at a convention selling my own movies, and I got recruited to work at a distribution company on the East Coast. So I went straight uh, before I was 19. I had a job in the industry, um, which was crazy. Yeah. Um, And I was blown away. Um, So I worked there for three years. And learned a lot. I learned like everything about the distribution business, especially, well, at the time in 2005, 2006, 2007 era, 2008. Um, And I worked in their marketing department. I went to conventions. I I learned to sell because that was the big thing that the reason they hired me, they were like, you're willing to sit and talk with people until they buy the movie. And I was like, well, yeah, how else do you get them to buy the movie? They were like, you'd be amazed (laughs) how many filmmakers don't understand that. Yeah. And I, I had no clue just how correct they were. So... (laughs) so I used my, my knowledge working there. Uh, eventually I, I left that job and decided I was going to try and figure out my own stuff. And, uh, so then I made another movie, a second film. Um, and that film, I was able to sell into national distribution through my old boss. I just called him up on the phone. I was like, I think this is something you'd want. And he looked at it and he was like, all right, let's do it. So, Uh, from there, I, (laughs) from there, I did it again. I sold him another movie and then he and I partnered on making babysitter massacre and we partnered on making a few other horror projects. And that was just the beginning of things kind of going crazy. Uh, like just, I was constantly making movies and constantly making movies. And then eventually in 2014, I got fired from my day job and I was like, you know, I should just try this all the time. Cause I had just sold a kid's movie to like, uh, the United kingdom and Germany and France and a few other places. So I had some money in the bank, uh, not enough by any stretch of the imagination, (laughs) but I, but I, but the fact that I had, like, it was a big deal. The moment I realized that filmmaking was no longer causing me to be broke, but was instead causing me to be less than broke. That was the big turning point of my, of my life when I was like, okay, so, so it'll bring in some dough. So. I, I took the chance and, and, uh, and said, all right, I'm going to work for myself. So I did some movies for hire. I also, uh, I still can't believe I did this this early in my career, but I threw my entire life savings into a Western and, Mm. um, and people were like, you're crazy. And I was like, no, you're crazy. If you're not seeing the market trends of Westerns. So I made a movie called calamity, Jane's revenge, and it did stupid business. Um, I think that movie ended up making me 15 times my investment. Wow. Um, Yeah, it was, it might be more, I'd I'd have to actually like look uh, at my books, but so I've had some good, some good fortune in the business end. That's been the, the big thing is that I, I don't think it's that I have an incredible business acumen, but I have any business acumen and, (laughs) and, and you'd be amazed. Like, you know, you'll do a deal with like a a producer or a distributor and they'll send you a contract that says total bunk and you could say no to everything in it. Like, and they'll, and they'll (laughs) keep talking to you. And all I can think is like, wow, somebody actually signed this crappy deal without, you know, erasing all the bad crap first. So that's kind of where I'm at. And and even to this day, even with all I've directed 17 features, I've produced like 28 or 29 movies. And uh, even to this day, I'll sometimes get contracts or deals with people who think I'm like a yokel because I'm in Ohio or something. Sure. So then I write so then I write them back and I go, please find the redlined version of this this contract. Was not pleased. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's that's that's like the long of the short of of kind of my my career but i I mean movies have always been such a a poignant part of my life and now for the last eight years they've kept food in my stomach and a roof over my head so you know i like every day is just movies movies movies. how have you felt about
0: um with that being the thing that's your main source of income does that I guess uh I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about like the art of it though um in mm-hmm. terms of like uh obviously you're very prolific and you're at this point you're incredibly seasoned for someone <laughs> your age <laughs> uh but uh I'm curious like what goes into like making a movie for you artistically I suppose
1: Uh, well the big thing, you know, people don't ask that enough because, because frankly, lots of people talk about art, but not, but like commerce is much more of a mystery to most people, but I'm happy to answer that. I believe that. So like most filmmakers, I started out directing scripts I wrote, but then I started branching out because I am not a disciplined and prolific writer. I am a disciplined and prolific director and producer. Sure. sure Writing wise. I I can't just sit down every day and write. It's just not in me. so. What I do is when I develop a concept with a writer, I try to know what I want the emotional, the emotional balance to be, or what I want the theme to be to some extent, Mm -hmm. like, um, like that Western calamity, Jane's revenge. That's a movie about what strength is. And what society says strength is because Calamity Jane in the film, she is on a revenge spree, killing all of the men who were involved in the murder of Wild Bill Hickok, the only man she ever loved. But the entire point of the movie isn't that she's just going to shoot everybody and all the stuff The, the entire point of the movie is that she cannot be made of stone even though that's what she believes she has to be. And that's what Calamity Jane's legend was that she was kind of made of stone Mm -hmm. hard and whatever. So the, without much of a spoiler, the climax of the movie is not her, you know, having a shootout with the main bad guy. The climax of the film is when she finally, after a whole movie of almost, she finally cries about the fact that Bill died and that Mm -hmm. she misses him. And that after everything she's done, she knows she's not going to get him back. And to me, as a, as the director who only, you know, dabbled in what the screenplay was, that was what I found meant the most to me. Mm-hmm. Like, like to me, I was like, that is what tells you everything you need to know about this movie is once she starts crying and allows herself to be human. That's when she truly allows herself to be strong and to be, I don't know, something better than she was at the beginning of the film. Right. right so, yeah. yeah. And once I know that, once I have in my head that, oh, well, when we get to that point, I'm going to do that every other artistic decision I make is informed by knowing I'm heading to making that point. Yeah. Yeah. And it allows me to kind of in a very, a very, and I'm not, you know, known for my subtlety, but in a very subtle way, <laughs> it allows me to kind of infuse everything with the one, the theme that I see as the most important. Um, and sometimes I'll be making a film and uh, halfway through shooting, I'll realize that the theme that I don't believe in the theme that I established initially, because after seeing how the actors are doing it, after seeing how I'm filming it and how it's kind of grooving with my sensibilities, I'm like, Oh no, this movie's not about this. This movie's about this. Okay. And, 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 but it's funny because it's like, it's almost like all I'm doing is not denying what it's already trying to be. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, because once you're right, I mean, like I I haven't had heard anybody say you're very seasoned for your age, but you're, you're right. Like by the, by the ninth film, they almost make themselves in some ways. (laughs) Like I know how to set a camera down. I know how to, to, to get the lights where I like them. I know how to listen to the actors perform and, and, and tell them what I like. And I also know how to get just the shots. I want to convey certain things without really having to, to think about it that much. I just kind of go. And usually by like the, the end of the first or second day, I can really tell what I'm going for. Um, kind of from my gut. I'll have some plan and some idea. Sure. But, uh, but usually the, the usually if like, I don't usually tell people, here's the theme I was going for because then they will be, it'll uh, poison their opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because people will watch like uh, one of my like silly, you know, sleazy horror movies I did early at the earliest part of my career. And like, if they asked me what was the, (laughs) what was the theme? I would be like, loss and growing older and they'd be like what and i would be like that's what i was running with it doesn't mean that you had to get it from it sure yeah but that was what helped me give a consistent storytelling experience
0: yeah i mean i'm a i'm a big believer in the idea that the audience is going to take what they take from the film and you can't oh, yeah. really do much about that but i still like to know artist intent as well because i think it's hard to to not have any sort of idea or like at least and for me it's not even that you know the theme or it's just it's just about like having somewhat of a connection to the material and it doesn't yeah. even it doesn't even have to be some deep thing where it's like oh the my deepest darkest fears are on the page and on display here like i i saw recently that you were you helped produce like a like kind of like a sex comedy type movie yeah. the the beach uh babes Babe beach, beach. Babe Babe beach. Yep. um and it's like that's still to me it's like if you grew up loving those kinds of things and you wanted to make a film that's in the vein of like euro trip or road trip or those kind of movies like that's still to me is meaningful because that you like that kind of stuff and you want to make that kind of stuff it's like so i'm not even like uh yeah i I love when directors have like big deep themes that they're going for and i love hearing what you're saying about calamity jane it makes me really want to watch it uh but you know even stuff like that it's like it's as long as it's what you like and you're doing what you want to do. And you're being honest, I guess is the biggest thing. Uh, honesty is
1: super important (laughs) because audiences can smell a rat real fast. Oh yeah, Um, for sure. But I do, I do want to say Bay beach, one of the things that attract, so Cagney Larkin, that was his, he directed it. I, I brought him into the project to direct it and write it. And he, he shot it down in South Carolina and a little bit of North Carolina. His script is so full of personality and heart. The mm-hmm. movie's really about friendship and about listening to your friends and, and about fear and loneliness. It's it's like a really it's in there, but it's also a ridiculous, silly movie with gross out humor. Sure. And I love that. You know, that's the <laughs> best. That's the best. That's what'll make you watch it twice. Well, yeah, that's you why know? I
0: go back to like super bad so much, is because oh my God, that the, like, so the good. heart of that movie is so pure about yeah. two friends having to move on into adulthood and it really is the core of the movie and it's surrounded by all sorts of craziness, obviously, but but the heart of the movie is still there. And so, you know, I, I I, I like hearing you say like, I love a romantic comedy and and stuff like that. Cause there really are, the genre
1: doesn't mean that it's not like, doesn't have more to it, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, I think that the best thing you can do if you want to, well, I mean, as a film lover, but also as a filmmaker is, fend off as much dogma as you can Mm -hmm. because it's very easy to become dogmatic in lots of different directions and lots of different ways. So fight that off. Don't let yourself believe that things have to be a certain way. You should be malleable and excited to try new things. Yeah. I remember when I made my first non-horror movie, my fourth film was a non-horror film. People were just kind of like, uh, okay. And I was like, "What? I need to do this. I think it's the right thing. And I really want to do it. Yeah. And then I made it and people really enjoyed it. And then when I made my first family movie, which was two movies later, I made, I made a talking dog movie, which I <laughs> love everything <laughs> about that movie. That movie is a family drama about loss with a talking dog in it. Yeah. Um, it, it really <laughs> is. And I was so proud of that film. And I remember people going like, okay, so that's the kind of stuff you want to make. And I was like, today, yeah I, tomorrow maybe not they they also were like a western and i was like you know you people shut up you guys don't interest me you guys are too busy <laughs> thinking you need to do the same thing over and over again yeah uh, i but-
0: think that's something that I, I actually it's interesting that you bring that up because one of the questions i had on my mind is um and something i've talked with other directors about is like this idea of like finding your style or your voice and stuff like that and it's something that i know a lot of people struggle with it's something i definitely struggle with like you know. Uh, like say I'm on a dating app or whatever, and I say like, oh yeah, I'm like a filmmaker or whatever, and they're like, what kind of films do you make? And I, I never know how to answer that question because <laughs> well, I'm sure. like, I'm like, I guess all I can say, I I'll usually say I don't make pornos and I make nonfiction uh, narratives because <laughs> like if you're asking for a genre, I don't have one because I will do anything that catches my fancy. And oh yeah. I don't know. Like I've never, I've always been kind of excited by the idea that that almost anything excites me. But then sometimes I get jealous of director. But the thing is, like I think most directors, they have little ticks and personalities that come through no matter what they're doing. Anyway, it doesn't matter if they're doing oh, yeah. like sci-fi all the time or whatever. But um, I'm curious. Like, was there obviously you were talking about how it's almost automatic for you at this point? But do, is that a struggle you ever had?
1: And have you ever really thought about my voice, my style anything like that i was always very confident that that would just kind of figure itself out i just kind of because because the fact of the matter is when i when i started making movies uh like the first first two movies i made i considered myself very much a technician that was kind of what i had my, my most most my pride was in like camera light editing you know that yeah, stuff yeah. and now I, I mean, I, I love photography and I love getting a good image, but like, I, I don't even want to edit. I don't edit most of my own movies. I I don't want to, Mm. I, I, I find now what I'm most into is composing my shots and talking to the actors. Yes, Uh, That's what I'm most obsessed with now. But if you told me when I was 18 years old, dreaming of being a filmmaker, I would have told you I was into what I consider now to be the very safe elements of technical stuff. But now I'm much more into the voodoo. I like to get, I like to get in there and talk with everybody and really try to understand what they're coming from and understand, get them to understand where I'm coming from, communicate efficiently, and then step behind the camera and just be impressed by my dream. You know, the dream coming to life in in front of me. Uh So that's, that's, I've never really sat and wondered, but I will say that, you know, I think it takes for me, I've always believed that you need to make about three, you need to make about three features before you even know if you like it. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's always been my mantra. Because the third film I made, I was so burnt out on making horror and comedy The third film I made is probably one of my most underrated movies. It's called Bleeding Through, and it's literally a non-narrative about about a woman who um, is, is just has like maybe the worst life ever, is crippled <laughs> by anxiety, uh, finally <laughs> gets so distraught she commits suicide, but then under with no explanation ever given. Uh, She just wakes up from the suicide, like there's blood everywhere, but she has no cuts. And then she just quietly and silently gets up, cleans herself off and kills everyone. And uh, she just finds them and kills them. And it's a very weird movie. Like I said, it's non-narrative. So I let you just kind of figure it out. Best of luck to you. But I loved (laughs) doing it because I felt like I was really telling a story. Um, and I was so burnt out on like being goofy. I was so burnt out on worrying about what people were going to like or what sure. people were going to find interesting. And the funny thing is, you know, I make a lot. i most of the movies I make are definitely commerce minded, but I, I've really stopped caring what people will, will think overall. My biggest concern is getting the film to exist. Yeah. Because that's the heart. Hard, the hardest two things are getting the film to exist and getting the film to make money. Mm -hmm. so you know you do those two things so for me i just try to make a film that i think is entertaining and then everything else who gives a shit like at the end of the day and especially that's why i like doing quantity too because i could just take as many risks as i want and then if you don't like that one well then just watch the next one the next one's already coming you know yeah 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 coming right up and i was was talking
0: to a director friend of mine too and something he said really stuck with me where he's said something like He's like, well, I'm going to try some different stuff because, like, I need to try different stuff to see what I like. And I was like, that's really that's a great point because sometimes I think it's easy to fall back on old habits, and you never know what you're going to enjoy until you try something crazy, and you're just like, oh shit, okay. Uh, But yeah, yeah, I I, I, sometimes I do wish this was more of an interview type show because I I could talk about (laughs) filmmaking stuff for hours. But you know, speaking of like your film taste, I'd love to know like uh, I guess specifically, I feel like there's got to be a story behind Eddie Presley and why you wanted to cover it for the show. So I'd love to start with that.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So when I was uh, 16 years old, I I started working my first, technically my first job ever was actually working as a convention person for Tempe video, JR Bookwalters company. When I was a teenager, uh, it wasn't really a job. It was like commission work. He would send me the movies and I would book the, the convention and then I'd go sell the movies and because of that, Jr. And I had quite a rapport. And at one point he put out the original Eddie Presley DVD. He's the, okay. the he was the distributor and he wrote me and said, Hey, I'm mailing you a copy of our new release, Eddie Presley, because I think you need to see it because <laughs> I think anybody who's creative needs to watch it. Wow. And I'm I'm 16, so I'm like, okay, cool. You know, I'll watch it right after I finish watching Evil Dead. Ah, I'm so cool. You know, I'm edgy. <laughs> so I put on Eddie Presley, and when it was over, my jaw was just like hanging because I couldn't believe how much I, f- I I how much I understood about the the sense of like. The sense of joy in knowing what you want and the sense of absolute powerless misery in knowing what you want. <laughs> and and a lot of people jokingly call it Eddie Depressly because it is a <laughs> it's a sad movie. And 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 I so when I was 16 years old, I no joke, I would spend the weekends when I was like doing whatever, you know, uh, writing or, or, or working on whatever stuff. Cause I was very busy teenager. I I dropped out of school right when I turned 16 and only wanted to work on movies until I had to get out of the house. So, uh, I would watch it. Like I would watch the original cut and then I just watched the extended cut and then I watched the original cut and then I watched the extended cut and then I watched the original cut. I I must've watched the film a hundred times as a teenager, no joke, like legitimate hundred times. And I, I just, there was something so powerful about the idea of following your dreams, even if, even if it's stupid. And even if you're not that good, who cares? Cause it's your dream. God it. Yeah. It's yours. And that's what made that movie really special to me. Well then on top of that, um, when I made, after I made my third movie, the non-narrative crazy movie, I kind of felt burnt out because the guy who helped finance that crazy movie he went crazy and made my life kind of miserable. (laughs) And so I actually had a moment where I was like, you know what? I almost feel like I don't want to make anything anymore. I was very low. Yeah. And, and I remember talking to an old friend of mine on the phone and he was like, what, what movie would actually make you happy to make? And I hadn't thought about that in a while. So I was like, well, I want to make something sad and funny. and like." Eddie Presley, (laughs) you know, something a lot like that feels that way. So I made a movie called depression, the movie, and it's one of my proudest pieces. It's probably the most me movie. The first movie I ever made that was entirely personal. And I didn't care if anyone would like it as far as I was concerned, maybe after it was done, I'd never make another movie again. (laughs) It ended up being a huge success for me. Uh, at that time it was a crazy success. It paid off all of my debt from, from reckless filmmaking. I, I, but the craziest thing about it was I was at a, I was at a film festival that treated me like total dog crap. And when I left the festival, I went into the convention area and Jeff Burr, the director of Eddie Presley was there and I didn't know he was going to be there. So I walked up to him and I, and I, and he was talking to somebody. So I, I picked up a copy of Eddie Presley out on the table to have, to buy it so he could sign it. And when I walked up and handed him the movie to buy it, he, he picked, held up the movie. He was like, you want to buy this? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, have you seen this? And I was like, yeah, it's one of my favorite movies that I've I've ever seen. And he was like, are you serious? So then I quoted a couple of lines from the movie that I I've memorized forever. And Jeff and I ended up talking for uh, 45 minutes until the show closed. That's he so gave me cool. his phone number. He <laughs> gave me his number and we ended up chatting on the phone and he wrote, I sent him a copy of depression, the movie when it was done. And he wrote me this amazing review telling me that my, he'd watched my other stuff. Cause I sent that to him ahead. Cause he asked, but he was like, you were entering a very special part of your career now because this is a film nobody, but you could have made. Like nobody else could have thought of all this stuff. This was all you. And, uh, and he was like, and that's important. And for those who don't know, Jeff Burr, I mean, he's a, he's a blue collar working filmmaker. He made uh, you know Stepfather 2, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, Puppet Master 4 and 5, a ton of kids movies for Full Moon. Um, he's done everything, but he also made Eddie Presley. And Eddie Presley was a film he made for his soul. That's the way he put it to me.
0: Oh, no, I'm kind of curious, because now that you say that, I feel like I have a lot of uh, this movie, I find myself maybe even more than fascinated in the, in, how do I phrase this? Uh, maybe even more than enjoying the movie, I found myself being like, I can tell this is a passion project, and I want to know like the story behind it, because like Dwayne Whitaker is the star, and he wrote it. Yeah. And then you have Jeff Burr, who is kind of famous for like all these different, like late in the franchise sequels and stuff, like obviously a fascinating career, and from what it sounds like. Uh yeah. A, a great dude. Um, but like I would have guessed if you had asked me, knowing nothing about the film, this was all Dwayne Whitaker. But so it's interesting to hear Jeff Burr felt but then you watch the movie and you see some of the shots, and they're so Obviously, so carefully thought out and artistic yeah. that, like you can tell they were really putting their heart and soul into it. So it does make sense that it was such a passion for him, too. So I don't know, like you're probably more hip to the behind the scenes and all that stuff than <laughs> I am, so I- Well,
1: and and I've been very fortunate because like I've become friends with Jeff and Jeff actually appeared in uh, my first romantic comedy making out. He played a bit role in it uh, because, (laughs) because we just became buddies and Dwayne Whitaker and I have become pretty decent friends too. Later on, I met him. um, He actually uh, gave me a first draft of Eddie Presley, uh, the screenplay. And it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a bit different. You can actually, when you read the script, you can really tell where Dwayne's, um, you can tell where Dwayne's sensibilities end and Jeff's begin and vice versa. Interesting. Because you can really tell what like Jeff was really into in the film versus what Dwayne was really into from writing it. The entire movie came from Dwayne Whitaker's one-man show, Eddie Presley. Oh, that makes sense. He used to do a one-man show, which was just the third act of the movie. The part where Eddie does his performance and the tape gets eaten by the machine. And he yeah. just kind of goes on like a Lenny Bruce diatribe in front of the audience <laughs> and lays out his entire story. That was actually a one act play that, uh, that Dwayne used to do. Okay. So that's, that's the, the, the basic origins. I highly recommend the commentary track on the DVD will give you incredible insights into what went into making the movie, um, how they, they rate he, uh, Jeff Burr. The reason Jeff Burr was able to make Eddie Presley is because uh, (laughs) when he, he was at a, a restaurant in LA talking to these Texas guys who had a bunch of money, and trying to get them to finance the movie. And uh, Toby Hooper came in to the restaurant and stopped by and said hi to Jeff and shook his hand. Cause Jeff uh, asked him for his blessing before he made Texas Chainsaw three. So, Literally, Toby Hooper came by and said hi to to Jeff and made him sound like a big shot. And then these guys got to meet Toby Hooper, and the second he left, they were like, "All right, we'll fund your movie. You're legit." <laughs> so he says that the entire reason Eddie Presley exists at all is thanks entirely to Toby Hooper. Oh, wow, the director of the original <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, yeah, so wow. It has all kinds of crazy stories like that, or like the film was shot on sixteen millimeter because uh, then they could have twenty four days. I think it was a filming because if they shot it on thirty five, they could only have like ten. Yeah. days of shooting and he wanted to get that you know lo- which what you pointed out like the really thoughtful shots and the really you know planned out everything and that's and that's to me the movie just everything about his heart and soul the 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 solo guitar for most of the uh score uh you know the the realism of of eddie being you know a guy who lives in a van yeah. <laughs> Um, and, 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 uh, Eddie Presley having a guard job. That was a Dwayne Whitaker truth. He, Dwayne Whitaker was a guard during the majority of his early career. He was just a uh, security guard. And then he would, uh, run off and, and, you know, do a little movie bit and then come back. Um, it was after, after Eddie, he never put the guard uniform back on. He managed to find enough work to keep going.
0: Nice. I feel like I had heard the name before, but when I looked at Dwayne Whitaker's, uh, acting credits i was like well i guess i really just mostly have i saw him in in
1: pulp fiction and that's pretty much yeah. what i saw him in uh <laughs> but to well, be he's, fair he's just he's just a character <laughs> actor guy he's just been in everything it's hard to really nail him down yeah i mean
0: i i've seen the devil's rejects so i guess i must have saw him in that uh and and there's a, a couple other like dust till dawn too i've seen so i'm sure and he I was in feast him.
1: He was, yeah. uh, he was uh he was a in feast. He was like a truck driver. I think it was in feast. I mean, he's
0: like the kind of person that would be so fun to sit down and talk to. Uh, he's the best. I'm, I'm sure he's him. like seen it all, and it's just like yeah. I mean, it, this being a one man show that he used to do, like it really the pieces all add up for sure in terms of like how this uh came to be. And if people don't know, um, because this is a pretty underseen movie, and we actually had to delay doing this episode because. <laughs> i foolishly assumed i could just watch it uh and then like a couple of days before we were going to record i was like this is nowhere even illegally uh yeah i'm was like, uh, <laughs> yeah, i was like, I'm sorry it's ebay or nothing on this bad boy <laughs> i was like i yeah you know, i will gladly pick up this dvd because it's only like six dollars but it's gonna take a bit to get to me uh yeah. <laughs> so but and if people don't know uh we'll go through the movie the actual plot but just as a baseline dwayne whitaker uh, who you might know as Maynard from Pulp Fiction and things like that. Uh, he's sort of this down and out guy who used to do an Elvis impersonation, doesn't really get work as it anymore. So he's he's just kind of a down and out guy. Seems like a nice guy. He's got a seemingly nice girlfriend. He's got a security guard job that it's, he's struggling at. Uh, and then like the 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 meat of the movie is uh, this guy who has this dive bar is looking for people to, like. Bring people in, so he see he's got a Eddie's like headshot, and he's like, "You know what? I'm gonna have him come perform or whatever, so Eddie gets another shot at the stage, and then we see how that all transpires, and that's like just a basic overview of like what's going on I mean I, the movie's called Eddie Presley, you could kind of somewhat guess that the Presley thing is gonna be involved a little bit <laughs> and stuff like that, yeah, and if you watch the trailer, it, it gives a pretty good gist of like uh what the deal is. Um, but yeah, that's it's man. I mean, I definitely understand now why it's such a meaningful movie to you, and to discover it at such a young age and grow up with it and stuff. And and I do think that especially uh, creative type people, there's going to be a lot to dig into with this film. But I also find that I've been saying this a lot on the show lately is that the more specific you get, weirdly, the more universal. Your film is because if you get really insular and specific with what's going on with your characters, for some reason, it makes it easier to focus on their struggles as opposed to just being like general. It's like you watch a movie where a guy is like down and out in a van trying to become an Elvis impersonator versus a guy who has vague business job. The down and out Elvis impersonator is weirdly way more relatable because for some reason you're able to grasp what they're doing and now their internal struggle becomes easier to track as opposed to you sitting around going what business do they do i don't he's like in trade or something like i don't like like I, i've been actually realizing lately that movies that are very vague with those details are actually more confusing and less relatable in a weird way trying to yeah. be more universal actually makes you less universal uh, Yeah, the minutiae
1: <laughs> kind of pulls people in
0: the, yeah the, the
1: minutiae of what they what they do and where they are and stuff it it, it it just fills in the the blanks and allows you to kind of fall in and and swim around in their world a little bit yeah more,
0: you feel you feel a part of it you know yeah. and uh I, w- I will say like i i i don't have a ton of i wouldn't even call this a criticism but i did find it funny i was like I, I don't know what the culture of like early 90s hollywood was but i did have a moment where i like stepped aside and was like it is very interesting that he's trying to make this elvis thing work in hollywood specifically because i love movies about hollywood it's one of like my favorite little niches is just movies about movies or movies about hollywood i just did sunset boulevard for the show um i I love that kind of stuff and so i love that this is like hollywood based but i'm like is hollywood really the place you'd want to try to become an elvis impersonator (laughs) that seems like 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 you'd be doing so much better in like vegas or reno or uh branson
1: (laughs) well that's the thing is he didn't see himself that way You know, that's the that's the weird thing about Eddie's Eddie's tribute to the king. He didn't see himself as an Elvis impersonator. He saw himself as an Elvis tribute. Mm -hmm. And he even mentions that he started doing the tribute to the king before Elvis died. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why he sees himself more as just a full blown road act. Yeah. That that needs to start up in L.A., not as a a Branson sideshow or as a, a Vegas thing. I think that's why I think that's why he's, he's in LA. He thinks like, well, this is where the action is. So this is where I need to be. Um, and he has this, and that's one of the other great things about it. Cause what I call that, what you were talking about, like the, the kind of slice of life, Hollywood stories that, uh, you know, movies are made of. I call them like Holly weird stories. Like yeah, yeah. I, I feel like, I feel like Eddie Presley captures beautifully that 1991 Los Angeles, yeah. where it's just it's hot and there's a lot of street gangs and, um, <laughs> and Clue Gulliger is always somewhere. And, you know, like, because, because one of the big gags in the movie is that Eddie, there's this, uh this um played by Clue Gulliger. There's this. um Yeah. That's another thing agent. I'd love to
0: defer to you on in this film is yeah. the film is filled with people's faces. who I like, I'm like, that's a guy. I feel like I know, like, I mean, like Ted Raimi's in the movie and I'm like, I, yeah. I like, I, of course I know who Ted Raimi is, but like, I'm trying. I'm hard pressed to even tell you which character he is. I, I think he was Scoot. I think he's- he was.
1: He was one of the guards that worked with him. Scoot. Oh, so he's like super young
0: yeah. in this. Yeah, he's real
1: young in that. Yeah. Uh,
0: oh, uh, okay. So was he like this asleep guy? Who- yeah, yeah. He
1: was the guy that. <laughs> He oh was that one was of the, ted like,
0: ramey wow holy and shit then,
1: well and he went he went to the nightclub with to see eddie yeah was he's him and, at, and, uh, he was
0: like his he, they he him and his other buddy they were like his yeah. bodyguards or whatever
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah they acted like <laughs> his memphis mafia i <laughs> love that part so much <laughs> i and, didn't and, realize yeah. that was ted ramey holy shit yeah he was he was very young 19 it would have been 91 when they fought when they shot that and it came out in 92 handsome guy
0: Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> and,
1: and and there were a lot of those like character actors that, uh, that populate it because, uh, Jeff Burr and obviously Dwayne Whitaker knows a lot of actors too. Yeah. Um, your, your friends, you know, your friends, uh, are actors that, and they work a lot and you want to give them these special roles. I mean, you also have like, uh, the magician that performs along with Eddie on the same bill is Keystone, the magnificent he's played by Dan Roebuck. Who's playing uh, grandpa Munster and Rob zombies, the Munsters right now. Oh, really? Um, yeah. The, yeah. The, the
0: magician guy was like someone, I was like, I feel like I know this dude, but I just couldn't place him. Like almost everybody was, in the movie is like, I feel like yeah. I know this person, but I
1: can't quite. Uh, <laughs> I think Dan Roebuck was in, like, was in, I mean, he was in some Harrison Ford movies. He was in a lot of cool stuff. Well, it looks like in he's 90s. in like a
0: million Rob Zombie movies. So that makes sense. Yeah,
1: they're buddies. Yeah, they're buddies. Because yeah, so I've seen, it, I've
0: seen the uh, Devil's Rejects, I've seen Lords of Salem uh so yeah that 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 tracks (laughs) it looks like it it seems like Dwayne Whitaker's worked with Rob Zombie a few times too oh yeah um definitely this movie's almost kind of infamous for uh I don't know which version I watched I know there's like a director's cut the version I watched was like an hour and 46 minutes um I don't know if that tells you which version I watched, but Uh,
1: the Eddie Presley that you watched was that long. Did it end with a a freeze frame of him doing the Elvis pose? Yeah. 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 That's the, that's the uh, final cut, not the extended cut.
0: Okay. So Um, the
1: extended cut is just a longer version that they cut. The first version they cut for festivals and then they, you know, tightened it up. So, It's it's just more Eddie. If you need more Eddie, than watch <laughs> extended
0: cut. You know. Uh, but I was gonna say, like, if you like Google this movie, one of the first images that pops up is just a picture of Bruce Campbell and Quentin Tarantino. Like, yeah, because like, they were
1: in one shot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like they were orderlies I, in one shot.
0: Yeah, I, I watched a, a YouTube video because like, if you try, because I was trying to just find any way to watch Eddie Presley. Yeah, and all I could find was just a YouTube video of Quentin Tarantino and Bruce Campbell behind the scenes. Like it's like a four minute video of them, like doing their orderly thing. And I was just like, <laughs> they were
1: filming. Eddie Presley was filming at the same time as reservoir dogs. Wow. They were filming on, on opposite sides of the town at the same exact time. Yeah, in I fact, Lawrence Lawrence Tierney's in both films. He's in reservoir. Well, yeah, dogs. Yeah, that, that, that was the Eddie big Presley. thing
0: is uh, one of the guys I did recognize was the guy that bust Eddie sleeping on his security yeah. job. I was like, Oh, that's just, Like that's the guy from Reservoir Dogs, the, the head guy. (laughs) Like I I know him. And I was like, this is right around that time too. It's just, it's just interesting to see these people in each other's movies and stuff. And it does kind of like make you weirdly nostalgic and be like, oh man, uh," like, man, they all knew each other and they were working together and the Yeah. So Dwayne Whitaker and Jeff Burr, they knew the Rameys probably. And they're all hooked up with Rob Zombie and Quentin Tarantino and Campbell's in the movie. Like, (laughs) it's just like all this interesting. Uh, And he knew Toby Hooper and it's all connected. (laughs) It's funny because it's like if everything feels so vast, but then everything feels so small too at times. They
1: they all want to, they all don't want to be alone. So they all hang out at uh, the same bars and stuff.
0: (laughs) Um, But yeah, you know, speaking of the movie, we should talk about the movie specifically. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So Eddie Presley, a movie from 1992 uh, directed, as we've talked about, by Jeff Burr written by Dwayne Whitaker starring Dwayne Whitaker. Um, so I I was telling, uh, uh, Henrik before we started that I try not to go scene by scene, detail by detail, but just to sort of paint a picture of Eddie Presley's life here. Uh, we, we pretty much, we, I mean, there's a, I'm not going to get super detailed with, there's a lot of B-roll of Hollywood and, and they're really gorgeous shots. I like it a lot. Um, helicopters flying around and just <laughs> giving you a vibe of the city, especially like the grittier, dirtier side of it for sure um having actually been to LA a, a couple years ago it's, it is it is kind of cool now to watch a movie and see the stars and be like i i did walk down that sidewalk i've seen that those places it's pretty neat i was hassled uh, by that scientologist guy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well i that that hollywood walk of fame street i just wanted to see it and i uh, the one uh tourist thing i fell into was a guy caught my eye and like pressed a cd into my hand and was like, hey man, you know, we're selling these CDs. He's like, where are you from? I was like, uh, like Indiana. He's like, oh, word, I got people in Indianapolis. And I was like, okay. And I was like, looking, I was like, wait, why do I have a CD in my hand? He's like, oh yeah. <laughs> it's like, I was, uh, you know, that's whatever you want to pay for it. And I, I like, was like, okay, here's a $5. He's, he's like, there's a lot of songs on that, man. And I was like, $10. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, like, and I was just, and then I, it took me months and I finally put it in my CD player. And of course, it was absolutely terrible. Uh, but yeah, it was like the one thing I got hustled on when I was in there. Cause I didn't even take any pictures on Hollywood Boulevard. Cause I didn't want to look like a tourist. Cause I saw <laughs> all the traps. Uh, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty wild place. I, I got off that street pretty quickly. Cause I was like, I don't think I want to <laughs> be here. Uh, I gotta go try in and out while I'm here, uh, <laughs> but it was great. In And Out was super good. I'm glad I tried it. Uh, but I do like of all the B roll in the movie. My favorite shot is definitely, it's a little on the nose, but they have the the flyer that's been all beat up on the Eddie Elvis Presley star and the yeah, Eddie yeah. like covers the Elvis and it says Presley. I was like I was like you know they were excited about that shot <laughs> for sure. Oh
1: yeah, that was a beautiful <laughs> shot. Uh
0: but yeah, so uh, basically to sum it up though like our main character is Eddie Presley. He's uh we find out later in the movie he l- literally had his name legally changed to uh, Eddie Presley. Um yeah. People on the street seem to know him just like like uh houseless dudes just are like, hey Eddie, what's up? So you're like, okay, I guess he gets around. Uh, well <laughs> but it's he good lived... to make
1: friends with those people. You know, when you live in a rough part of town, it's it's good to make friends. Yeah. Because uh, friends uh, keep you
0: safe. He just fully uh he fully lives in a van. Uh he's like also a houseless person. And and I mean, I'm I'm all I'm all for a down and out protagonist for sure. I, I did feel I find it to be an interesting character facet because I the movie does kind of imply that this doesn't necessarily have to be how he lives uh because you know his girlfriend is like you could stay over if you want uh and he's kind of like he's almost like too proud to accept it and he has a job i mean he loses it in the movie or at least gets suspended for a while but i'm like he's making money like i don't know if (laughs) as i was like is he how bad is it that uh um, but I mean, I, I, I love the van stuff. It, it all the B roll is, is fun. Uh, but yeah, pretty quickly we, he visits, uh, this diner where we meet his girlfriend whose name, I don't know if I ever caught. And, oh, um,
1: uh, that one's a little stuck on my brain. I'm not, not sure what her name yeah, is. Yeah.
0: And, but she seems nice enough, but the way we meet her is for some reason, this gal is in the diner trying to schmooze her, uh, yeah, and like, get her
1: to do a porno
0: yeah she's like very into her and like feeling her up and stuff and i guess that'll pay off later but she she's like oh that loser uh and and the movie's like rife with weird little characters here and there not a lot of them get a ton of development but you know when eddie first walks into the diner there's this bald guy with these like crazy bifocals who when eddie walks by he like holds his hands up like for for a cigarette and just every time eddie sees him he like sighs and gives him a cigarette which is also very amusing to me as someone that's so broke they live in a van he's got to like pay a cigarette toll every time he walks by this dude Uh, (laughs) it's like tough times uh for eddie but um and that was another part of the movie that was like i always struggle with movies that are i wouldn't call this movie like a vanity project by any stretch but because it's like written by dwayne whitaker starring dwayne whitaker I always am a little like, hmm, he's got this super cute waitress girlfriend who kind of, even though he's like literally living out of a van and kind of a loser, she still, you know, gives him the time of day. And then simultaneously there's this other gal at work who's like head over heels for him too. And it's just like, I just can't imagine writing a script where like two women are in love with you, even though you're just like, so like this literally a loser. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> I, I don't uh,
1: there's a big power to being a funny guy.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's and, like, Ed,
1: and Eddie is a very likable person though.
0: Yeah. It, it, that, that was like the push and pull was like, I was like, he is very nice and he's obviously very charming and it, it just being like kind of funny and having a personality does go a long, long way. But it is like, I I feel like there's like, that's like a mental hurdle. If I was writing a script for myself, I don't know if I could ever get over and just like, yeah, she's in love with me and she's in love. And yeah, things don't necessarily work out with the the diner girlfriend too well. So, you know, there is that layer of it. But
1: Well, and there's also the fact that the diner girlfriend is kind of fair weather. She's Mm kind of, she kind of loves Eddie, but she also wants Eddie to change a lot.
0: Right. Yeah, and, uh, I, I assume if he announced he was giving up the Elvis Presley thing, she probably would be like, "Cool, that's good." Uh which yeah. is, you know, now not you can really work what for you want from my dad or something. Yeah, it's not really what you want from a partner. So there, there's yeah. definitely like layers to her character for sure. Well, um, oh, and
1: and that's the thing though is is Eddie is caught up with the glitz of the fact that she's just a very beautiful waitress
0: yeah yeah you
1: know he's just caught up with that and then the girl who's uh always like so afraid of him because she has such a crush on him at work he's oblivious to the 10th degree i yes, mean he is yes. he is so oblivious to the fact that she is into him and that she is a very legitimate person
0: yeah and so, she's so you know she's yeah. so funny and cute like i love her character she's like just like always, stuttering and saying like, just like I do, love the personality that they give a lot of the side characters. Like they feel very lived in, uh yeah. even if even if you're not following them for giant subplots or anything, you just kind of really get a feel for what their deals are. The club owner, he's just so over it and exasperated, and it's like, yeah, this is the kind of guy that owns a a d- dive bar like this. <laughs> he's just kind of like, yep, uh, and like even all the little acts that come in to try to try out for his show. You just, you just get a sense for everybody's deal. Smokey, the bartender like, just, it just keeps cutting to him. He's just
1: like, this guy sucks. <laughs> Fucking loser. Well, and 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 one of the big things that Eddie pushes that I think is really valuable is the, uh, the Sid. Uh, so Sid, the guy who is a uh, agent that hangs out at yeah, the diner yeah. that Eddie is like, I just got to impress Sid and he can make my career in two seconds. Sid is a washed up has been loser yes, who just course. hits on actresses that's and he's an old man he's a creep oh and then like the creep
0: to the 10th degree like this guy is like lynchian level creep mode with his jet black hair and his white eyebrows like clearly dyed hair and he's got like this whole spiel about yeah that's why i don't really deal with men anymore only women because men are too crazy or whatever he's like clearly worthless and he's just using this as an excuse to like hit on women and just like he's so gross and it takes eddie to a new level of like sad for me when i realized like because every time he looks over at him i'm like i'm like oh yeah he knows this guy's like kind of a piece of shit and then when he's like fumbling over himself to try to like impress him i was like oh eddie come on this guy fucking sucks what are you doing <laughs> and, and that's kind of the point though is is
1: everything in show business is just the blind leading the blind leading the blind yeah. because then the club owner um is like a, a sweet guy with good intentions he's he ha- he is completely out of touch with well, yeah with he, he thinks that magician that is like people. a genius and yeah the- Like (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. He thinks Keystone, the magnificent is going to turn the club around, (laughs) but he's just a cheesy magician. And that's, and that's why I love it though, because there's always this attitude in, in creative fields that like, all I have to do is this one thing and then everything's going to work out. Or all I have to do is do this thing and everything's going to work out. And if I could just get this person to care, if I could just get this job, or if I could just get this distributor and it's all bull it doesn't matter no matter how hard you work you're gonna have to keep working hard
0: yes yes i uh i'm in a lot of uh screenwriting groups on like facebook and stuff there was a pretty popular post recently where someone just popped on and was like look i wrote a great screenplay i know it's great i don't need anybody to read it or tell me it's good i just connect me with an agent so i can sell it and just it just like comment after comment of like i think this is a joke post but if it's not uh, you're a fucking yeah. psycho and it takes a lot of work it's not you don't just come on and say give me money i'm a genius writer uh, it's like people it, I, I know that's why i appreciate you talking about like oh do you want to become a filmmaker well you got to have this level of obsession or you know a question i get a lot at the access station is uh, people just want to cut straight to i'm famous like I've had people literally tell me like, well, how do you get a video to go viral or how do you get this or how do you make money off of this? And I, I just always kind of jokingly go, hey, man, if I knew the answer to that, you wouldn't be talking to me right now because I wouldn't be here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you'd like, be talking to an empty <laughs> chair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, you, I, like if I if I knew how to get famous and make a million dollars writing a script, I, I wouldn't be working at the library. I love the library. I, I it's the first job I've ever had that I actually like. I that's not me throwing any shade at the library. It's just important I do, to like
1: your job. It's yeah, hard to find a job you like.
0: I know, and I I feel simultaneously guilty but uh very grateful that I can say to people like, "Hey, can't tell you enough what a, a meaningful change in my life it was to finally have a job that I don't wake up dreading going to every day." <laughs> Uh, because that's all I ever had before that. Because I worked in nothing but factories before I started working at the library, and it's fucking miserable. And <laughs> it's just like, and yes, there's downsides to trying to be a filmmaker in the marketing. And I'm literally in the middle of a thing right now where I'm trying to help out with a feature film where there's a lot of caveats that are coming with the the money that's being invested. And I'm just like, this is a fucking tangled nightmare. But I'd yeah. rather I'd rather unweave this crazy web than. Uh, throw musical instruments in a box for shitty people and terrible managers so I mean it's just you know it's it's a trade off for sure (laughs) a a great poet once said mo money mo problems and it's always (laughs) been true yeah and another one said I got 99 problems but (laughs) just kidding Uh, but yeah you know and it's funny because later in the movie I, I, I do like when Eddie's given part of his monologue and he's like doing word for word, his mental breakdown in that uh, restaurant essentially. And one of the things he like yells at them is like, like it's simultaneously pathetic, but also very meaningful where he's just like, you don't know what it's like to play to a crowd
1: and blah, blah, blah. And you'll never know. You'll, you know, those moments. Yeah. It was, it was those moments. Yeah. Those, I've moments.
0: Had those moments. moments. I was like, shit, Maybe was like, not a
1: full set of them, <laughs> but I've had some.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, it's weird because it's like, you're kind of sad and pathetic right now, but it's also like I do kind of respect you for at least going for it. Uh, it's 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 a pretty great like double edged thing that they're able to walk. Uh, but yeah, um, we find out that Eddie he he works as a security guard, but it's not going super well. Uh, he's been no. interviewed by this guy who I don't know what this dude's deal is. Uh,
1: he he just he, hates Eddie he just uh, hates him
0: well the the guy that the reservoir dogs guy hates him but this guy that oh. he's talking to in this uh room oh like, that guy yeah yeah, yeah. He, he's like the guy who
1: that, talks like a nazi yeah are fraud. And he like
0: he's like were you because you find out that eddie like snuck a shower in on a job yeah he and took he got a shower caught. when the
1: place was secure and yet, the guy's like he so does it again.
0: Guys, like, so you were naked, and he like starts like
1: sucking on his pen. I was like, what is happening right now? And he's like, well, I was <laughs> I was naked when I I showered naked, but uh, I had on. But uh, when I was found, I was in the process of getting back into uniform. I had on a white shirt and the regulation slacks.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Uh it's it funny because like the guy starts massaging his shoulders, but then he's because that he's like, well, that supervisor's kind of mean. I mean, you can agree, right? And the guy's like, guess what? I'm glad he is because that means you guys will work harder. I, like, I like
1: hard asses <laughs> on my team. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. And and, and, and he, yeah, he's like, he never cuts anybody a break except his buddies from his gun club. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great line in that. Yeah. Cause uh, yeah, he's just Eddie. The problem is that Eddie cannot not just daydream through his job.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and it's also like, it is a weirdly uh, thematic element of Hollywood too. It feels like a shot at Hollywood where it's like, yeah all your buddies get a pass your 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 yacht club gun club buddies they can come in the room and pitch you whatever dumb idea they have but if even though i have a great idea i can't come in the room and like talk to you because i'm not one. i'm not one of the club i'm using air quotes here yeah uh, so it does also feel thematic in terms of the world that they're in as well but yeah so he's I mean it, all but it's it's just setting up like he's got the security guard job but it's tough. We meet some of his pals. Uh we meet this gal Betty who's clearly like head over heels for him and he's oblivious to it. Ted Ramey and then this other dude and and they're very friendly and they're nice and you like them immediately of course. Uh we meet the we see the magician trying out for the bar thing. He's obviously like kind of a you can tell right away. That he's like a sleazy like wannabe but for some reason, Doc, the owner's charmed by him, but the bartender is just like this guy. Uh, uh, fucking and- <laughs> loser.
1: Loser, loser, <laughs> loser. Uh,
0: and then we get some more stuff with Sid, the agent, just schmoozing women at a diner being creepy. More stuff with his girlfriend, too. He comes back to the diner. She gives him some coffee. And uh, for some reason, the girl that wants her in the porno is just there every time. He's, she just lives there, I guess. Uh, and every cool. time Eddie shows up, she's mad about it.
1: <laughs> well, people that work, you need to remember people who work in show business don't have anywhere to go most days. That's true. That's a great it's point. for real. Um, it, I've, it. I've, I, I've never lived in Los Angeles, but I have many friends who, uh, have lived there. Most of them have left now. Uh, it seems like now's the getting's good to get out, but yeah, uh, they yeah. <laughs> they told me stories about like how, when they weren't working, there were like these big, uh, lunches, where like tons of these guys who like are character actors or uh, TV directors or whatever, they just all get together and have lunch every day because they have nowhere to go.
0: Yeah. When they're not working. It's funny because ironically, I feel like uh, that's been one of the biggest things with to be, to make it relevant to the show is uh, the podcasting boom, I think was born from the fact that so many people in showbiz have so much time off Mm -hmm. in between jobs that like like the the big most of the biggest podcasts are just like actors and entertainers and writers and stuff who just are like well i you know i don't really work normal hours so i guess i'll just like in one of my favorite podcasts I, i think the two i listen to the most are both from people that live in hollywood uh one's about fast food and one's about action movies and i love them both and i love the guys a lot and it's like they work as writers and actors sometimes, uh, but it's mm-hmm. like, at this point, their main source of income seems to be <laughs> their, their fairly popular podcast because they had time to, to do it. Uh, so yeah. yeah, it makes sense that like in the early 90s, it's like, well, I'm not shooting a sex scene right now, so I guess I'll go hang out in this diner.
1: <laughs> well, especially in the morning, you know, especially yeah. in the morning. Cause it's like, well, I'm going to go get a couple eggs and read the newspaper. Cause that was another <laughs> thing people did back then was they read the newspaper. Yeah. So, you know, you'd want to go somewhere just to feel like you're getting out of the house. And I can tell you as you know, I, I, my office has been in my home for eight years. Um, my God, is it nice when there's a reason to leave the house? It is so <laughs> nice when there's an excuse to leave the house. I I will be here for such an, a long amount of time doing so many things and all I, I wish, I wish I had a, a haunt that I always go to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wish I did. Honestly, I kind I started having one right before COVID and then I fell out. So it's, 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 yeah, it's, that's kind of the way it goes. People just kind of hang out and hang around and creative types are horribly lonely. Yes. And that's a really much. important thing to point out. Cause I wanted to mention something, uh, about uh Larry Tierney's character hating Eddie so much. I think Larry Larry Tierney's character hates Eddie because Eddie cuz he literally calls him some pretty awful things about being a showbiz wannabe and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, we we I get, a, cl- we get a
0: classic uh F bomb F bomb drop. Uh <laughs> Like, not, then, I'm not talking about fuck
1: guys. <laughs> well, and it makes, it makes sense though, that, you know, he's worked this guard job forever. All he cares about is making a good paycheck and doing a good job at his, at his gig. And he's seen all these people come and go that are there just to get as much money out of the job as they can while they try to actually do something else, like be a right. writer or be a director or be an actor. And I think that that's uh, an important thing because Dwayne Whitaker wrote another film that he directed called together and alone, which is also, I only saw that one uh, about four or five years ago, but I was looking for it for a decade. I ended up the only way I could find a copy was I got Dwayne to give me a copy. he made, (laughs) Um, And now it's, it's somewhat available. It's a long story, but that movie has a great line. Uh, It's, it's just it's a night in Hollywood with a bunch of crazy different characters. It's really fun, but there's this great part where a guy is talking to a waitress and he wants to ask her out. So he's trying to start a conversation with her and he's a writer. So he sits in that place all night writing in his notebooks and drinking coffee. And he, and he says, so what do you do to her? And she's like, I'm a waitress. And he's like, yeah, but what else do you do? And she's like, what do you mean? And he's like, everybody in LA is doing something else. You know, like you're waiting tables, but like, what do you really want to do? And she's like, I want to wait tables. And he's like, that's all you want to do. And she's like, I watch you all do something else. And I thought that was a really incredible moment in that movie that mm. kind of lays out the kind of Hollywood experience a little bit better. Yeah. <laughs> it is funny
0: too cuz I do hear sometimes like people don't talk enough about there is still a, a very blue collar side to Hollywood as well. Like Oh yeah. It, it's not like there's nobody working at uh factories and doing uh plumbing and electrician electrician work in Hollywood and stuff yeah. like uh, it's not like none of those industries don't exist it's just it's it's just such a weird town cuz a lot of people do move there with the hopes and dreams and and I'm going to become a big actor and and you know it's it's been a big topic of like I talked to a lot of Midwestern filmmakers obviously and it's like the fact that we live in an era where we can kind of move away from that a little bit which is cool but there is, you know, a mystique about Hollywood too. That's kind of neat as well. But I've watched enough movies about how much it chews you up and spits you out that I'm like, I don't know if I'm ever going to be keen to actually move there myself. (laughs) I, I couldn't,
1: I couldn't imagine moving there. It would be a horrible, a horrible move. I mean, I lived on the East coast and I didn't hate that entirely, but even that was just, I'm good. I'm good. You know, I, I just don't need that. And the funny thing is like, I get hired by people in LA all the time to do things. Yeah. And then, they, cause they don't want to do it there. So, <laughs> so <laughs> there you have it. Um, but no, so I, I mean, I think that Eddie does it, it kind of pulls up kind of the underbelly of like, everybody has their hopes and dreams. And a lot of people are mm-hmm. misguided and don't really know what they're doing or what they're trying to get. Uh, and they all think that there's sanctuary in something. They all think that, If they do one certain thing right, it'll all be easy from here on out. Life is Logan's run. There is no sanctuary whatsoever, (laughs) period. So, you know, you're always going to be struggling. You're always going to be working. You're always going to be fighting for what you want and what you believe in. That's just the way it is. And that's why Eddie resonates with me so much because he's true to himself. And that's important, you know, because when he starts revealing about himself in his stage show after after his planned act fails horribly he mentions that he actually was a successful business owner with a wife and two kids and he 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 had basically invented delivery pizza uh, in his little college town and was making so much money he was opening more and more restaurants and making tons of money and he was miserable he just hated every second of it uh, he hated all of it. And uh, there was a great part where people were like, you know, are you happy, Eddie? And he was like, oh, yeah, I was happy when I was eating hits of speeds like they were fucking chicklets. Yeah, I was great then. Now I'm all crazy. Now I'm insane. You yeah. Know? And <laughs> and and basically you find out that what happened was he sold the business, went through a hellish divorce and then took the money left over and went on the road. Doing That's a great point to, to ask because
0: I don't really feel like I, I didn't really feel like I got a grasp of
1: what happened to his kid. Uh, like oh, so so he I think yeah you're right. I think he only had a son. Well, what happened was when he got institutionalized, he lost all custody and rights to his child.
0: Okay, Is that, so like the way he like thinks about his the kid and looks at the picture, I was like, did I miss something? Did the kid die? Like what happened here? Like, oh, he's just
1: not allowed to see him. Once yeah. he went crazy, his wife used that as an excuse to keep him away because she. I mean, there's that whole part where he's remembering telling them that, and she just keeps yelling, I hate you at him. I hate you. I hate you. Yeah, <laughs> it, man. So, I mean, that, that's the power of it though, is that what Dwayne had told me once about Eddie was that what he really wanted was for people to look at. People, other people in show business, who you may just not take a second look at, or you may not take seriously, or you may not care to know anything about, and remember that they probably have an actual story. Yeah, like, you, you know, know you see some guy. Yeah, so please.
0: Well, no, that's, that's a that is something that I got to thinking about during the movie, though, and it's I think it ties in like uh, because we can kind of just lump all this up into one group because there's all these people that try out for the club that we see, yeah. and of course we have the magician. I found it kind of interesting that. This is a movie where our main protagonist is this down and out guy who we sympathize with. And I find it interesting that there's still chunks of the movie where you're seeing these other acts where they're almost more like a gag or like the butt of a joke. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't know how you felt about that in terms of like, because I feel like you're, the movie is exactly what you're saying, where it's like, maybe you should look twice at this person. Maybe they have a story. Uh, and, and I almost, the movie makes me so sympathetic that. When they're being dismissive of Puppet Guy, I feel bad for Puppet Guy, and I'm like, guys, yeah. yeah, don't be mean to him. Like, I, I don't like, I don't know. It's it's weird because it feels like it's being played for comedy, but the movie's got me in a headspace of like feeling for the dude. <laughs> oh sure,
1: no, I mean that's a good point, and I think, but really, what they're showing isn't just how ridiculous everybody else in show business is, but they're also showing again, they're they're making it clear how Doc, the guy who owns the nightclub, how he's just so out of touch. These yeah. are the people he auditions, and he doesn't find any of them funny, even the funny <laughs> ones. Because like the puppet guy was pretty funny, you know the uh, the sick comic was pretty funny, uh, which by the way was played by Tim Thomerson from Transers. Uh, I loved seeing Tim Thomerson pop up in there. Is and that like the really
0: out. crude comic with the yeah cigar? yeah the guy who
1: came out and, hit, and opened by going blow me blow me blow me. Good evening, <laughs> ladies and shit. I love that. I love that so much. I, I love how the, bar- the bartenders. Do. That's
0: the one guy the
1: bartender's into. He's yeah. like, This guy rules. <laughs> wow, this guy and the doc's like thank you he's like doc what you doing <laughs> Are you gonna let this guy slip by like, yeah you know i do some real clean material I want open for the councils
0: i love it him. he's like all, all of you out there try not to think about my dick yeah. like, okay
1: everyone i want you to take a deep breath close your eyes and try not to think of my dick i love i have like his whole his whole spiel memorized cuz it was so funny uh, and and that's the thing though is that like uh you know, Eddie's Eddie's tribute to the King seems silly to us. So does all of their performance art seems somewhat silly to us. It doesn't seem like any of them are thinking about mass market. They're just kind of doing what they believe in. Um, And then Keystone, the magnificent comes out and he's just as cheesy as can be. Um, He's decent at best. And my favorite thing about Keystone is not that is the Keystone. uh, The uh, magician is that he (laughs) The first thing he does when doc asks him follow-up questions is exactly that showbiz bullshit where he just starts talking shit about people in his business. He's like, let me tell you about, you know, Doug Henning, Doug Henning stole my trick from me. You know, he starts just just shitting on other people in which I'm like, that is so (laughs) accurate. (laughs) 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 Like that's perfectly accurate. And, but that's the thing, you know, if you, uh, uh, I, I, I'll i tell you wholeheartedly, I once made a, although it wasn't a big one, I once made a distribution deal solely on my ability to amuse the guy who owned the company with show business stories. Because <laughs> sometimes that's it. Like everybody just wants to feel like they're in the biz together. You yeah, know, they, yeah, they yeah. want to just feel like, you know, because he's a guy who owns a business, like uh, a distribution company, but it's not in LA. It's not even in New York. It's kind of on the East coast away from everything. And he just wants to sit back and like talk some shit and feel like, you know, we're we're showbiz people yeah and and that but that was like my favorite thing when he starts talking to doc he immediately just starts saying like he punched doug henning in the face if you ever saw him and this other <laughs> magician did this or that to him and stole his <laughs> act and stole his trick and and all this stuff and i'm just like man this is exactly what it's like talking to these showbiz people they just they've got nothing good to say about nobody uh so uh,
0: yeah um as far as the movie goes um you know we already talked about it he gets caught sleeping by Lawrence Tierney. He loses his job. But Doc, he's he's done with all these acts that we talked about. I think we talked about Puppet Guy, Dirty Comedian. Uh, we're forgetting about Cockroach Monologue Bug Guy, of course. Yeah, the uh, the,
1: the <laughs> Desert Storm protester. Is, yeah, is, is, get yeah, out of his, here, you
0: commie. Get, get out of here, you commie bastard. We kicked
1: ass in the Gulf. <laughs> uh,
0: but he ends up calling Eddie. Eddie's got a gig. But it was kind of funny because like uh Eddie proceeds to spend the rest of the movie leading up to the gig just being as nervous as you possibly could be for something. And I was like, I don't I, I found myself uh simultaneously like, oh this is interesting. I feel bad for him that he's so scared and I want him to do well. But I was also like, this is literally all you've been working for. And you finally get a shot and you're just you're just pissing your pants. Which I mean, I get it. Like we just talked about it at the beginning of the episode is like Oh, this is something I actually care about. This is so much more high stakes. So of course you're going to be nervous. But I was just like, "Come on, man! Show me just a flash of something." Uh, like you know, I gotta, because I, I do know another thing I've talked about with with film is I've noticed that we like people that are competent at stuff in movies. Like we want a character who's good at something. Uh, yeah. You know, like when like when he comes out to sing. Because they really, they really tease you. You don't even know if he's going to be remotely good at singing or not uh, yeah. until he finally sings it. Because they, you don't get a flash of it, you don't get a hint. And I was just like, I was in this being my first time watching the movie uh, when he finally comes out on stage. Just like Jesus Christ, you better like be at least okay because uh, this is going to have all led up to like what is this leading up to? <laughs> and then he starts to sing, and you're like, okay, okay, he's not bad uh, actually. Um, and it's, it's nice. It's like a nice surprise. Almost like I was like, he's gotta be at least decent. Sure. Uh, and and
1: Dwayne Whitaker <laughs> who played Eddie, he said that when he performed as, uh, when he performed the songs as Eddie, he felt like the goal with Eddie's performances were for him to not be terrible, Yeah, but not be great.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So that he said that what he was hoping was that the audience would go, man, if Eddie was just a little better. Yeah, if it was just a little bit better. That's like what he wanted. He wanted you to feel kind of bad. He's like, oh man, he could just if he was just be- a little bit better. I believe he could do it. Yeah, but he definitely he's, he's threads that, that needle. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and, and, but then he, but then I feel like he brings the house down with his with the that's what the king means to me. He ends with yeah. that original song where he plays the guitar and and that that part kills me. That's the that's like. I've watched that movie so many times. I cry multiple times when I watch it and I feel like when he plays, that's what the King means to me is like, is like my signal to like get the last out of all of the emotions (laughs) the movie gives me and start to get ready to relax and head back to my life. Yeah. (laughs) The movie will be over soon. And um, I love it.
0: Yeah. It's like, and again, if people have never seen the movie, so we've, we've like the movies like about an hour and a half ish long. And we get yeah. like the first half of the movie is just buildup of like Eddie's life and what he's dealing with. And then literally the entire last chunk of the movie, the last like literal 40, maybe even 50 minutes of the film, uh, depending on when you want to count it, is him. He dresses up as Elvis, his buddies pick him up in a limo and he goes to the club to perform. Something I was confused by was they have the magician like way bigger, like he's the bigger deal. So yep. I thought Eddie was going to open for him. I didn't realize that Eddie was going after him. Uh, Cause usually you have like the big acts, like they're the closers. Um, but Eddie cl- is closing for some reason, but the magician does his act and people hate it. Uh, I guess again, <laughs> if people have never seen the film, they're in this tiny, tiny dive bar. There's not a lot of people there. There's, and like, there's these two- like
1: six tables, seven. Yeah. Tables there's top. like two
0: old ladies an older couple uh, kind of like this random dude, uh, Sid shows up, which again, tells you how pathetic he is, Yeah, that uh, yeah. he actually does show up to the show. Well,
1: he got comps. So now he can drink and hit on the
0: waitress. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. The poor waitress. You remind uh, me of
1: Fay Ray. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, or the goddamn monkey.
0: Yeah. And then, and then Eddie's <laughs> friends from his job show up, the, his two pals and the Betty, the lady who's kind of in love with him. And, and she's super charming. She like brings him a bottle of something. And she's just, I thought I, I did yeah, she's like, I didn't know if you could. Something that's funny with Eddie is like, uh, he smokes a lot, but I mean, it's the '90s, so that's not really a factor. <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, he doesn't seem to have like a drug or alcohol problem because I thought for sure he was gonna like chug that bottle and be like kind of drunk when he came out, but he never really touches it. And I was like, okay, interesting. And we and something else we haven't really mentioned is we're getting a lot of like black and white flashbacks yeah. to his previous life and also his time spent in a psych ward because. We find out during the show that he had a mental breakdown and got committed for a while, which is when we see our infamous Bruce Campbell, Quentin Tarantino cameo for yes. Yeah. I, I read in one of the reviews that somebody wrote on Letterboxd that it plays like a jump scare when they show up because you're just not expecting it at all. Yeah. It just cuts to them for literally two seconds and you're like, what? And then it cuts away. Uh, although I know from seeing that behind the scenes thing that when he's getting wheeled down the hall, that is those guys. They were wheeling him down the hall, uh, but you just don't even see their faces. Um, But yeah, uh, so I mean, the entire back half is basically like, he comes out to perform, he's got this tape, he sings his first song, and you're like, okay. The whole crowd, you can tell they're kind of like, you know, he doesn't suck, and this is definitely a lot better than that fucking magician we just watched. Uh, (laughs) And then the tape goes haywire, and so the show turns into... I guess just the Eddie Presley existential crisis show. Uh. Yeah. Uh,
1: The way I always like to hear it described was as like a Lenny Bruce style, just bearing of the soul. Yeah. He just starts talking about the worst of his life and the best of his life. (laughs) And Uh, one of the best moments is that he talks about his girlfriend and how wonderful she is and how supportive she is, but she can't be there because she had to work an extra shift. But she actually ends up getting that shift off and then is cheating on him. And yeah. it's in her cut of her cheating on him yeah, while we, he's we get like it. a very
0: shocking flash of nudity out of nowhere
1: that I was not yeah. expecting. <laughs> and and then when it cuts to him after she's, you know, cheating on him, it cuts to his face and he just says she's one of the good ones.
0: Yeah. Oh, and by the <laughs> way, people if you've never seen the movie, people should know he is. Sweating profusely throughout this incredible entire incredible <laughs> sweat. I actually, one of my oh, sorry, but <laughs> well, no, I was just like, I'm curious if it was just legitimately that hot and he was sweating his ass off, or if there's just somebody right behind the camera with a squirt bottle, just like, oh, all dude- right. Squirt him and down him with
1: glycerin all day long. I guarantee it. Well, and one of my favorite things is when he starts loosening up and decides to just talk to the crowd for a little while, I do like that he orders a coffee, which yeah. is like not an Elvisy thing to do because he was <laughs> everything else he was doing was Elvisy. And then, and then, you know, he orders a coffee, which in the movie you mentioned, like he smokes cigarettes like crazy. He also drinks coffee nonstop. And he's yeah. constantly saying like, yeah, I'm going to cut back on the coffee eventually, but he just keeps pounding the coffee and pounding right. the coffee. So I actually kind of love that moment where he's drinking his coffee and like talking about whatever and talking about the albums he has for sale. And he like mentions that he has albums for sale. He's Like something went wrong when they were pressing them. So there's a weird hissing sound throughout both <laughs> of the tracks, but it's it's not too bad. There's uh, a lot any, of good anyway. touches.
0: Like just the, <laughs> just the timing of when he first comes out where the tape's not quite in sync and he has to like look over and see, look at the tape and then finally it starts. He's like, Oh, okay, cool. I can start and now. He and then, <laughs> yeah. And then, just little, like the, like, there, there's like a hiss on the, it's it's not too bad, don't worry. I'll be selling them in a lot, they're fifty and that's just all me. That doesn't even that's include just, the artwork.
1: That's just, yeah, that's just <laughs> the, my cost, nothing else. Uh, no, he's, he's, he's so good at, uh, and, and his character is so good at being just that unsure of yourself performer. <laughs> that just really wants you to like what he's doing because he cares about it. Yeah, and and that's why, it like, it, it like I said, that's why it means so much because I really think it's important that what Eddie loves more than anything, in the world looks kind of stupid to us. That's the point. Yeah, the point. The point is that it doesn't have to matter to us because it matters to him, mm-hmm. and that is a lesson that's done me well in my life. It, yeah. is knowing that you know, knowing that it, it may look dumb to other people, but for me, it's everything, and that's all there is to it. Yeah, and it's
0: interesting because, like, I do like we literally just spend the rest of the movie at this show. He talks about his life. We hear all about it. Um, he breaks for a moment and grabs his guitar and then even, there's even a, they make a meal out of that with him, like trying to pick it up, but it's still strapped in and he's got to like yeah. unstrap it and blah, blah, blah. And he does his, he does his tribute. And like, you can tell the crowd is like, Oh, they're like, Oh, this is okay.
1: Once who didn't uh, walk out when he started swearing.
0: Yeah. Uh, the old ladies walked out when he started swearing. <laughs> um, and then, he talks a lot more. We get more of his backstory and then he closes with like a really short song and just kind of like walks off his friends cheer. And he comes back out for a second, does the pose and just freeze frames and ends. I, like you said, I don't know what the other version, uh, cause you seem to know that I watched
1: a certain version depending on how it ended. The the main (laughs) version, the main version, the one that, the one that is, is the official cut, uh, in the extended version. Oh, sorry. I could see some
0: people feeling like, I know enough general audiences that would be like unsatisfied with an ending like that. But for me, I'm like, I love a just, yep, this is, that was a snapshot of this guy's life, freeze frame credits. Uh, like, I didn't feel robbed of anything. Like, I was like, I feel yeah. like I know what's up. Uh, I, I didn't, like, yeah, I, if they had had more scenes where he, like gets with Betty, we're like, oh yeah, at least he figured out that Betty liked him. That's nice. Like, but it doesn't really matter in terms what, of what, what the movie's you, going for. <laughs>
1: yeah, and I think that it works because the original ending is sadder. Um, the the <laughs> ending in the extended cut is he does his pose, they cheer, he you know he gets off stage, and then um, he's just kind of like chilling himself out. And his buddies from work and the the girl that has the huge crush on him, they come up to him and they tell him how great he did and they loved it. And, uh, and then they say like, let's all go out and get a bite to eat. And he says, yeah, I'll be, I'll be there in a minute. And they, and they go off and they're all excited because they're going to take Eddie out to eat. And then he literally just sits there smoking his cigarette as the music builds, like the main theme of the movie builds and builds and it dollies into him slower and slower and slower as he's just puffing that cigarette and looking Like I don't know, like it's very emotionally painful. But he just smokes. It's it's powerful moment. But it it's really like I get why they changed it because that movie has enough of that. Yeah. Like so, I feel like that's why they were like, you know, we can afford to cut that out because I actually I love both cuts because you get a lot of extra stuff in the extended cut. But that moment where he drops and it freezes and the music and the guitar just strums over it and you hear (laughs) the applause and stuff is is exactly what you need. Yeah. Because. I, you know, the, the fact is Eddie wins in that moment and that's all we can ever do is win in moments because life is nothing but moments. So, yeah, yeah. I,
0: I will say as a first time viewer, uh, when he's walking out of his dressing room, he looks up and there's just this random noose like hanging yeah. from a rafter. <laughs> and I was like I, like, I thought I was like, I think this movie's heading towards him killing himself. And then, so I I guess I was kind of glad it didn't go that direction No, no, um, because I was mentally prepared (laughs) for that. ending. (laughs) I was like, I think he just goes backstage and stage and kills himself uh, after this. But
1: (laughs) luckily that, I mean, that doesn't happen in any of the cuts I've seen, but it's, I mean, it's a, but it's a sad movie. And that's one of the things I like about it is that it's not afraid to be sad. It's not afraid to be a morose in many ways story with moments of joy
0: yeah it was never and it never lulled me into thinking that it was some sort of oh this is gonna be him finally getting his big break like it's not about some big triumph or anything it's like you keep saying it's like uh it's not about just one big break or anything like that and i'm sure this show it was not it's nice that his friends came and they enjoyed his performance but like sid's not gonna plug him into the biz but you know, maybe he couldn't if, he keep,
1: if he wanted to, <laughs> But maybe you know,
0: the, the movie leaves it ambiguous enough that you can still, I mean, if you want to come out with a positive feeling and you feel like, well, he's going to keep grinding at it. And, and Betty, you know, he'll, like he'll break it off with his girlfriend and get with Betty and he'll have an actually supportive person who wants to sing with him, And maybe they'll go on the road together. Like you can, you can at least envision a happy ending if you so choose. Yeah. Uh And it's not like some big glitz and glory and fame thing. And then that's, what's interesting about eddie Presley himself it's like uh you know I, I'm glad that I kind of mentioned at the top where I was joking about why would you try to make it as an Elvis impersonator in LA and you were kind of like well you know here's why I think like I found that very enlightening in terms of of that perspective because it is like what do you expect uh as someone who's dressing up as another person like there's a there's a ceiling for it's like it's like you're never going to be as famous as Elvis was because you're just dressing up as Elvis, so what are you going for at that point? And so I found what you were saying to be really enlightening in terms of like, uh like clearly the way he sees it and the way he sees the world and the, and the emphasis on not impersonation but tribute and stuff like yeah. that. And he does, you know, he does make it clear. He's like, yeah, I, I do still write songs, you know, and they're tributes to Elvis and stuff like that. I don't just do Elvis songs, and so it's it's like a really weird, interesting wrinkle to everything too. Uh, that, that's yeah, well, a he's fun. just
1: not what you'd expect, you know, yeah. he's not what you'd expect at all. And that's, that's one of the special things to me when Eddie says that line about, you know, no matter what happens, you know, as long as, uh, uh there's a place for Eddie Presley to do a show, he will. I, I felt like that was the sign that Eddie will be as all right as he could ever be. You know, because this is Eddie's blessing and his curse. He knows what he loves. He knows what makes him feel alive. Yeah. So he'll chase it and he'll chase it forever. So that was kind of the way I took it at the end is I was like, you know what? Eddie will find a way to be Eddie. And, you know, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but whoever said anything was going to be easy. Right. you (laughs) You know, life is not easy. If anything, he's much more sane because he is who he actually is and he's not living for other people and pretending, which is kind of why he has that breakdown.
0: That whole bit where he talks about, I was a successful pizza business owner and blah, blah, blah. That's another reason I can see why your friend, the distributor guy was like, you got to watch this movie because like, that's the kind of speech that, that it is like, there is a certain type of person that's going to find that relatable where it's There are people that's like, all they really want in life is to be successful and it doesn't really matter how, and that's Mm -hmm. what's satisfying to them. But for people that have some sort of creative strive or that want to make music or movies or write poetry or draw, uh, you're never going to be satisfied until you fulfill that creative side of you. And it doesn't matter how successful you are. Like, I think, I don't remember what uh, I was talking about. It must've been on a podcast, but I was ranting about that. There's that phrase, money doesn't buy happiness, right? Um, Mm. And I was talking about how, yeah, it's weird, because simultaneously, it must have been during Sunset Boulevard now that I'm thinking about it, um, because it makes sense that I would be talking about this concept. Uh, But it's like, yes, money, if you had a bunch of money, it would help you, because you would have less stress. (laughs) But if you have things that you want to achieve, it doesn't matter how much money you have, you still have things that you want to accomplish with your life, you know, as a matter how rich you are, or how successful you are, there could still be a part of you. That's not, and it's why I have a lot of sympathy for, you know, I literally got into like an argument with somebody on Twitter once where uh, lady got, Ga- someone was like, there was like a news story about lady Gaga where she, uh, she was like, this is something like she either, I can't remember if she like paid to like have a grocery store emptied so she could just shop or, or something um, and they were like, "Oh, poor you, rich and famous, blah blah blah. It, your life must be so hard." And I was like, commenting, you know, and I was like, "Yeah, imagine being hounded like every second of your life. You can't even walk down the fucking street. Like, yeah, she's rich and famous, but there's a whole multitude of other things that come with that." I, 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 <laughs> I always say to people, I'm like, I don't want to be a director to be famous because I don't want that life. <laughs> like, I don't want to be stopped on the street by every random fucking person and being like, "Hey." Uh yeah, I saw that movie, man. Like I'm like, nope, nope. You don't, you don't need to stop me right now. <laughs> like, like I feel like for you, it's it's cool because like you can go to like a convention and you're in your element where it's like people come up to me and I want to talk to them. But trying to go about your life, I feel like would be exhausting.
1: Uh- I had a DoorDash driver <laughs> pitch me a movie, um, and the worst part was he rang my doorbell, and but like, I don't know, you know, if you use DoorDash much, I use it way too much. And I live can, out in the I, sticks, so it's oh, not yeah. really a thing for me. <laughs> uh, I live in the burbs and I DoorDash <laughs> way too much. And, you know, you can put like, please leave it at my door. I have dogs, they'll bark and, you know, thank you. Yeah. And it was a Saturday. I had been working for like seven hours and it was only 1 PM on a Saturday. <laughs> I had, the, I had, I'm not trying to like, I'm just trying to paint a proper picture. I had cha- I had a change in my, in my medication I take. So I had this horrible headache that was going to last like four or five days while I adjusted to new medicine. I'm like dirty. Like my hair is greasy. And this guy fucking <laughs> rings my doorbell when I don't want to see another human being. I'm like, I'm like, I'm a gremlin. And if I just eat and then hide in my dark office, I can work all day. (laughs) So I have to stand out there and be polite to this guy for like seven minutes while he's telling me, he saw me speak at some event Yeah, and knew that I made movies and wanted to talk about stuff. And then he insults me a couple of times, which is really great. (laughs) And I'm just standing there literally like in my pajamas, the most miserable I've been in a long time. And I'm just (laughs) like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then when I came inside, I was mad, and then I was like, "You know what? I can't even be mad. I it's my fault I don't have the <laughs> level of privacy that I want. It's all on me. I did." <laughs> so, I got to let that one go. But like, yeah, it was just like it's just like, you know, Being at the pharmacy because you know, you need a very embarrassing ointment and that's when someone recognizes you. That's what it felt like. I was like, wow, there's not more of a time in my life that I didn't want to have a conversation with another human being right now. So um, tell me all about your movie. I am miserable and my dogs are bumping into the door trying to get to you because they're excited. But tell me tell me more so yeah. but anyway uh but no so uh, yeah th- no it's and and you know what what i'll say to you know that concept of what you're saying about like people going like oh poor lady gaga it's like you're right because celebrities and rich people don't have higher rates of suicide and drug overdosing at all uh they don't have higher <laughs> rates of substance abuse at all so they must their lives are easy peasy lemon squeezy yeah
0: and it's like tough like because you know i come from a very poor background like uh, like yeah you know money would make our lives easier and stuff but i just i just am so surprised by and i know it comes from being sad and having trouble in your own life that you want to you know take it out on other people but like just the lack of sympathy <laughs> i see in people is 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 sad and i you know it, it's nice to see a like a movie like eddie presley that paints such a sympathetic brush of like the human condition at times, yeah. you know, like it feels well, it, very empathetic. Like this is, this movie made me want to like meet Dwayne Whitaker and be like, man, yeah. like, like, you just seem like such a, like, like a, someone who gets it, you know?
1: <laughs> well, and, 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 uh, I think it was Roger Ebert said film is just a empathy machine. Yeah. That's, that's all it is. It's just meant to make you empathize with who you see. And I agree. I think that empathy is a really important thing. And, uh, unfortunately it lacks in some people, some people, it's just so easy to dehumanize people when you're jealous or when you're, you're downtrodden yourself. You know, I grew up, we had very little and I was always taught that you shouldn't assume, you know, how someone else's life is. Uh, even though we had a much less good life than many people financially, uh, I was always taught that I was like, no, 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 no. Don't take that out on them. They have nothing to do with that. That's a whole other thing. Doesn't involve you. It's not always about you. And uh, that's the hardest thing to teach creative people, by the way, is that there are other people on the planet. Yeah. Uh,
0: (laughs) Yeah, but it's like you have to, you know, obviously you're putting yourself into your work. And if you're a writer, your characters and stuff, but you also just have to, you know, uh, but, you know, filmmaking, especially, it's such a collaborative medium. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, I'm sure you, uh, I, I think that was like the crux of my rant where I was like, If I had all the money in the world, I guess I technically would be happy because I could just make movies, because it wouldn't matter, because I would have all the money to make the movies, but I was like, I would still have to find people to work with, I'd still have to have friends, I'd still have to have people that want to act in my movies and and make them with me, so money, like, you can buy, like, you can pay people to be with you, but it's more fun when you're making film with people that you love, you know, and that's the most enriching part of the experience, you know? is like making friends and 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 making stuff with people. And the thing I'm like, I'm glad I'm able to create art and do stuff, but I'm even more thankful for the people that I've met along the yeah. way. Uh, that's like the most valuable thing to me. And, you know, I, I do. It's funny. Cause you were talking about like, uh, I wish I had a place I could go. Cause uh, so I don't spend all my time in my house. And I've always thought of myself as a very introverted person, but then I'm like, if I don't talk to anybody, but my parents for a couple of days, I'll like go to work and I'll just like vomit diarrhea mm-hmm. on somebody. Like, because I oh, just yeah. have to talk to another human. Yeah. Like, and I'm like, holy shit. Like, I guess I was lonely or I needed to like talk to somebody really
1: badly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what happens to me is I'll like, uh, just be doing whatever, you know, working at home and maybe a day or two will go by. that I don't really talk to another person directly in any way. Um, and then like a friend will come over or, uh, or something and all of a sudden I'll be like, Oh my God, I am so sorry. I'm in a terrible mood. I had no idea. Cause I have not interacted <laughs> with anybody like I'm actually really grouchy, but I had no clue yeah. because without interaction, I'm not thinking about if I'm being grouchy. Yeah. Um, it's a similar thing. Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, we're all a social species. Uh, very few people are, are entirely introverted or entirely extroverted. Mm-hmm. So we need places to go, people to be around and things like that. And that's not because I know we're on a huge tangent, but like, that's something that I really wish somebody had told me when I first started working for myself was to beware of unstructured, of unstructured time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I tell people all the time. Um, one of the best things that ever happened to me was I was fired from the job I had before the one that I have because I hated working there, but I, I had six months of unemployment that i knew i had um (laughs) to fall back on and i could get by uh about three months into it i was fucking spiraling uh because i was like i don't have anything to tether me to the planet right now uh and i was like i don't i thought i was someone i'm like this is the greatest gift i've ever been given i'm free to do whatever i want for six months and then i I was like depressed uh (laughs) uh, so it's yeah and I, i totally i'm just saying i totally feel you I I fear I'm like secretly afraid for the day where I take the plunge and go, Oh yeah, I'm like a full-time writer and filmmaker now. Cause I, the the last person who needs to be setting my schedule is me. (laughs) Yeah, no,
1: it's, it's, it's hard. People ask me all the time. Like, what's your normal day? Like, and I'm like, dude, I roll out of bed and I just start. And I don't like, it's just become who I am. It's yeah. like, I know that there's this pile of things to do and emails to answer and lawsuits to threaten or whatever that day <laughs> entails. Um, this has actually been a very low litigious year compared to last year. So I'm happy, but, nice. but like, uh, but like it, it that's the way it, it is. And, um, I I read a book, which I don't know if it's still in print, but it was called full proof filmmaking. It was written by Andrew Stevens. He was an actor turned producer. He made a lot of movies as a producer. And uh, the book is phenomenal because one of the things it talks about, and I read it about two or three years into working full time. He actually mentions like, beware unstructured time. Yeah. Like have things to do if you have nothing to do. Yeah. And he said that the reason that he learned that was when he was an actor, you had even more downtime. And sure. he was a full-time actor for about a decade. And he said that what he would do is when he had no work is he would go to breakfast at this one place. Like it was his job. Like I have to be there at eight 30 to eat breakfast with those people. And then he would play basketball from 10 to noon. Then he would eat lunch. Then he'd go see a movie. And this was like what he had to do every day. Unless he was working on a, like a job that pays <laughs> Interesting. because he said it was like, I, he was like, I made it my job because I watched too many people I came up with start filling that time with alcohol and then drugs. Oh, of
0: course. Yeah. 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 I literally, so, I think I always tell people the one thing that like literally got me out of bed was we had a dog and she liked mm-hmm. to go on walks and sometimes oh, I yeah. like, well, I got to get up and give Oakley a walk. Yes, I better wake up. <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> That's how I survived lockdown during COVID was uh, I have two dogs and I have to take care of them. Yeah. And that helped me that helped me not fully spiral because I'm be like, no, man, I got to like change their water and let them out or they're going <laughs> to. Well, and my dogs are not uh, they're very um, uh, vocal, like uh, Henwolf will put her head on the edge of the bed and bark <laughs> once and like shatter me out of my skin uh, while I'm dead asleep. If I'm sleeping past when she needs to pee. <laughs> she, will, she will. Yeah. So I, I gotta do, I gotta take care of them. So, it's no, good, yeah, man the, yeah, but, but so yeah, unstructured time is a, is deadly and, and, and you, you know, know and you not to, to and
0: it. to like, pretend like the tangent was, uh, you know, somewhat related to the movie. I do think that one of the big positives of Eddie Presley is you really do grab onto his coworkers and, and Betty, who's also his coworker. Like they genuinely like him and they show up for yeah. his show and he has people in his life that do care about him. And, you know, that's like, t- like, that's a win, <laughs> you know, he's yeah, following his I, dreams and before. he has people that support him. Like, that's yeah. really all you can ask for. Uh, and, and, and he and,
1: won't wind up all alone. Yeah. You know, that's like, that's kind of the positive <laughs> side of the story.
0: Yeah. Like as it, it, depressing as the story is. I'm like, yeah, but they really have his back though. Like those guys showed they up do. to be like bodyguards for him and rented a limo for him. Like, come on, like those are bros.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, they're, they're, and that, and that thing is, and, and that's the thing that I, I'm glad you mentioned because I've been, it's been so long since I've been far away from this movie. Um, the, the, the part where you mentioned, you know, Eddie having like women interested in and stuff. Eddie is a charming guy and a passionate person. Yeah. And those are, Attractive things, not just to women, but just to people. People are attractive. For sure, to for people sure. People who are funny and personable. And Eddie doesn't have nothing going for him. He he does have things going for him. Um, but you know, we we're all kind of in the same, you know, cage in life sometimes, where you feel like you're you're running in circles and you're never getting anywhere. uh, uh not to like this is not meant to be a plug, but one the last like deeply personal movie I made was a movie called Nothing Good Ever Happens. And it's probably, it's probably my proudest film as a writer because it, it's just unfiltered the way I see the world. And one of the big elements is that there's a character who feels all alone and he's clearly not alone. He's interacting with people constantly who are very interested in what he has to say and what he's going through, but he still believes he's alone. We do that as humans, you know, we take things for granted see things as they actually are sometimes we only see what's convenient to us even if it's convenient because we would like to be sad you know because we're feeding sadness instead of feeding positivity or feeding what whatever um that's why eddie connects with me so well because he's he's you know he's a downtrodden guy and frankly he's not nearly as sad as he maybe should be considering just how uh bad things are <laughs> for him in a lot of the movie so that's one of the reasons it kind of it kind of pulls me up it always makes me feel good when I watch it at the end, because Eddie is true to himself and we could all hope to be so lucky. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's like if people, you know, if you want to see the movie,
0: uh, find it on eBay. Uh, that's pretty much the movie though. we spoiled a little bit of it. But I think we also kept it aloof enough that there's a lot for you guys to dig into if you want to go check it out for yourselves, or maybe you've already seen it and that's why you're listening to this episode you're like holy shit somebody's talking about eddie presley what the fuck Real. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah uh so that's the movie um i told i warned you before that we do ratings on the show uh, yes. i'm not going to ask you to rate it because obviously this is a movie that's near and dear to your heart uh, yeah, but I for people I that e- expect a rating yeah. from me if this is your first time listening which is very likely because there's a good chance you're listening because you saw Hendrick's name on the title and you wanted to hear him talk about stuff and you're like, who the fuck is this guy <laughs> talking right now? Uh, I have a very heavy grading curve on this show. Um, theoretically, I'm watching some of the greatest movies of all time. Uh, so my example I always give is in the very first episode I ever did, I watched The Godfather for the first time ever and I gave it an 8.5. For me, that's a 10 out of 10 movie. But on this show, it was an 8.5. So a bit of a grading curve so people know um so what does that mean for eddie presley (sighs) this is tough because this is a very classic film in terms of like i could tell this movie is probably going to grow on me and i'm probably going to be thinking about little scenes from it uh you know as it continues on i'll just be like oh yeah that scene uh, later in the week and months and stuff but for me you know we talked about a lot of the good aspects of it i will say it is a pretty slow movie i i think there's some stuff you could trim down a little bit, but it's also very slice of life. And I, I like the pacing of it a lot too. So, uh, but I'm going to go with, Hmm. I think I'm going to say 6.5. Um, and again, cannot stress enough. Uh, that's not actually a bad (laughs) score on this show. A 6.5 is pretty dang good. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to go with 6.5 for me. So just, just if there's anybody that's even listening to the show anymore, that cares about my ratings, that's for you. And I don't even like doing them anymore. They feel pointless. Like I like more just being like, would I recommend the film? Yes, I would absolutely. You've probably never seen it before, and it's worth checking out, especially if you love this kind of holly weird type gritty stories or you're a creative person at all. I can't imagine you wouldn't get a lot out of this film. Uh, So please do check it out. Uh, But I guess 6.5, I don't know. It's meaningless. Numbers are meaningless. (laughs) But yeah, last but not least, uh, before we get into plugs, though, I talked to you about
1: uh, is there anything you'd like to recommend to people, uh, to check well, after, out? Yeah. After we were talking, I realized I would love to recommend the wizard of speed and time because oh, while yeah, it's great. hard, to, while it's hard to get your hands on because it's so out of print, it is on YouTube and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there's no way to legally buy it. So I don't feel guilty telling sure, you to just watch of course, it on YouTube. Of course. <laughs> um, if it had even, if it even had a crappy pan and scan DVD, I would be, I wouldn't want you to bootleg it, but. If it's just it's just on YouTube, but it's the wizard of speed and time. There's a short film and a feature length version. The feature length version is the one I'm referring to. I think that's another great film for people who are creative and who have the creative spirit in their heart and need to let it out. But it's a very lighthearted, fun, feel good movie. And (laughs) And the story of how it was made is so similar to the story of the movie itself, which is is fascinating. Like the guy in the movie who plays the evil scumbag producer is the producer of the film who ended up taking the film away from Mike Jitlov and finishing (laughs) it against his will and putting it out. Like it's it's crazy. So, Wizard of Speed and Time, I think, is a great uh, experience if you love movies, if you love being creative, and if you love just jaw dropping uh, practical special effects wall to wall. It's just everything you could want.
0: Um, is there anything else like, uh, that's going to feel free like, if you ever, I, cause I was telling you, I, I know you're probably like a wealth of, uh, interesting references. Uh, so like if, if there is anything else you want to plug, even like video games or music, please feel free. But I'm also that, I mean, that's a great recommendation if that's what you want to, uh, <laughs> go with. <laughs> I, I think that's the best
1: one I could come up with to follow Eddie. Presley yeah. up with.
0: Um, hmm. You know, what's funny is there was some point during this episode where I was like, I know what I'm going to recommend and I have completely blanked on it because <laughs> uh, I, I think I'm trying to remember what my train of thought was because I couldn't, this is a weird comparison, but I couldn't help but think of 3,000 miles to Gray Slam while I was watching this film. Um, mm. It's this movie where these four guys dress up as Elvis impersonators and rob a, a casino Ah, uh, but it's it's like a big dumb action movie. So in terms of like the material, the, they couldn't be further apart. Uh, yeah. And so like I feel like that's a shitty recommendation. And and then I think I was thinking about that movie, and then I jagged off into something else. And I remember being like, "That's a great recommendation," but I feel like it's it's like escaped my mind now all of a sudden. So um, I'm gonna go with a couple things just now that I'm thinking about it. I, <laughs> this is a, this is a terrible movie to recommend because I've never watched all of it myself but when you were talking <laughs> about uh you were talking about people that are just such uh personalities but they still feel alone because of the way they see the world you started making me think of this movie called Naked uh starring David hmm. thulis uh from 1993 so similar time period um David thulis plays this like absolute piece of shit scumbag um <laughs> and the whole movie is him just ranting at people But he's just such a charismatic personality that even though he's like this huge piece of shit, all the characters in the movie are kind of fascinated by him. And so it's just kind of like a day in the life of a scumbag who is kind of weirdly charming, even though he's an asshole. Um, So there's some like interesting parallels there. And and David (laughs) Thewlis I think is a very underrated actor. Uh, And this is like one of his like I'm the lead tour de force performances. Again, I haven't seen all of it, but I've like watched scenes from it, and I'm just like this. I mean, he's really fucking going for it uh, in this movie. (laughs) Uh, And then I I just, uh, I guess, do another Hollyweird adjacent movie. I'm pretty sure I've recommended this on the show a million times because it's one of my favorites. But I will mention uh, Ingrid Goes West. I I like that film a lot. Uh, That was a fun one. It's an Audrey Plaza vehicle who I think also is a very underrated actor because people only really know her for like her shtick where she's like deadpan uh Parks and Rec lady, but she's actually got more range than people give her credit for. I would love for people to check out Black Bear as well. I was about
1: to mention that. I was gonna uh, say, have you seen Black Bear? I have that's a phenomenal
0: movie. I love that movie. Uh yeah, Black Bear. I guess that's kind of Hollywood adjacent too. Um she's so good in that film. But Ingrid goes west. I don't know. Like I've I've recommended it to people before and they've had trouble getting into it because of her character. She's so uh like there's a lot to her that's like she's yeah. doing She's doing bad things, but I don't. I never lose my sympathy for her, and I just I, her chemistry with uh, Elizabeth Olsen is 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 so good, and I I love that movie. I own it on Blu Ray. I would highly recommend checking it out. And uh, may, of all the things we've recommended, maybe it'll be the easiest one for you guys to find. Although you said yeah. the Wizard of Space and Times on YouTube, well, it is on YouTube because I literally pulled it up while you were talking about it, and like, uh, like I was like, there it is. I might have to check it out. And I know friends you who would probably it. would fucking love to check it out so that would be we'll- a
1: great like if you have some friends over and order a pizza yeah that's absolutely. a great oddball movie to put on.
0: <laughs> it's it's on my list now for sure that's exciting um but yeah dang man such a great conversation uh, absolutely this is a this is a really interesting movie that I, this is like i always say on the show part of the fun of the show is i watch movies that i maybe would have not gotten around to i can guarantee you this If it hadn't been for you recommending this movie to me, I never ever would have watched it. But I'm glad I did. It was a really interesting watch, and it definitely struck a chord with me for sure. Uh, And I, I, I I hope maybe it will get anybody that listens this to go out and check it out too, because that's the most exciting thing, right? Is introducing people to these kind of films and hoping that it kind of strikes their creative bone too, and like is meaningful to them. Uh, But you know, last but not least, of course. Please tell people where they can find you plug, whatever you want. Uh, open platform, no limits. Like if you got an OnlyFans, tell them where to check it out.
1: Uh. Well, first of all, I want to say, uh, I'm glad I could throw you a, a real deep cut. I'm kind of the King of the deep cuts. All of my friends are, are heavy movie nerds. And even they're like, what is this movie? And I'm yeah. like, just, just hold on, just watch it. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but, uh, so I'm glad I could bring you a, a cool deep cut that you may have never gotten a chance to see. Um, as far as plugs go, if you want to check me out via audio, uh, I have a podcast called weekly spooky where I host a, uh, I host and narrate a scary story every Wednesday. Ooh. Uh, we've done a, we're on episode 146 right now. Goodness gracious. So we we've done, <laughs> uh, we, I haven't missed a week yet. Even I, I had COVID twice and still didn't miss a week. Uh, Damn. so <laughs> I was really lucky. Uh, so, uh, so check out weekly spooky at weekly spooky.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It's available yeah. to listen. Um, it's really fun. It's like tales from the crypt was an audio book every week. You know, it's just a, a scary short story. It may be funny one That's week, super cool, gross one week, whatever, what have you. Um, and every now and then we'll do like four part mini series and little things like that to kind of shake things up. And then if you want to check out my, uh, my work in film, you can check out my official website, which is incredibly handsome.com. I'm not (laughs) making that up. I own incredibly handsome.com. It'll link you to where you can stream a lot of my movies for free on Tubi. Um I went with incrediblyhandsome.com for two reasons. Number one, it was available and number two, my name is hard to spell. So <laughs> sending people to henrikkuto.com is going to, you know, pull lots of interesting results, but incrediblyhandsome.com it's not that hard so yeah. people figure it out
0: wow how many times have people tried to buy that one from you <laughs> uh
1: not enough honestly because you know I, I i i'd be willing to take offers but that's a, uh, that's a hell but, of
0: a domain to be squatting <laughs>
1: <on>. <laughs> i know and i got it for nine dollars so it, you know there you have it
0: that's awesome that's super easy to remember incredibly handsome.com boom <laughs> <laughs> yeah please guys uh if you're happen to be one of the few people listening to this for uh me and not Henrik, please go check Henrik out. He's obviously incredibly prolific. There's I I can't imagine there's not something he's done out there that wouldn't tickle your fancy. So you know go to incrediblyhandsome.com or you search his name. You'll see it in the title, I'm sure. I if yeah I always you make Google sure I, me,
1: you'll find me. I'm, yeah, I'm the only like one. <laughs> whenever
0: I'm whenever I'm typing out the title of the podcast, I'm just like so nervous about like making sure the name's spelled I can't fuck this up.
1: Uh, like, my my the Dayton daily news once did a headline with Kuoto instead of Kuto. No. I was like, why? <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on the show. This was so fun. Oh, it was my pleasure. Yeah. Let's do it again sometime. Maybe Absolutely. maybe next time we'll talk about wizard of speed and time and we'll, 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 <laughs> well that real creative spirit. I'd be totally down.
0: <laughs> All right, guys, that's going to do it for us here at Clare Classics. And if you are a regular listener of the show, you know I always end with my terrible catchphrase, which is I'll catch all of you on the flip-flop later. Bye, guys.